Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. This is episode 40, and we're joined by a repeat guest. You all know who she is. Her name is Constance Everett, and she is running for mayor of Knoxville, uh, the city of Knoxville, that is. I want people to know the distinction because there is Knox County um, itself, but she's running for the city of Knoxville. Everett is an activist. She's from the city of Knoxville, and she has two nonprofit organizations, Black Coffee Justice and Sleeves for Needs. And um, she served the country. She served in Afghanistan, um, I think a few times, um, 15 years total uh, for the U.S. Army. But I just want to say welcome back to the show and thanks for accepting that invitation again. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me, Kiko. I appreciate it. Yeah, we have so much to talk about <laughs> today. And um, it's um, going to be a great conversation. I know it is. But before we um, continue with this great dialogue and just want to learn more about Everest campaign and everything else um, around that city of Knoxville. There's so much activity going on outside of electoral politics as well. And we're going to touch on those um, more serious issues um, too. But I just want to plug in and say that the pod has really grown a lot um, since we launched back in the summer of 2022. We've reached 43 different countries right now. And the goal is to reach 100 by the end of 2023. Um, the platforms are really growing. If you have a favorite podcast or platform of your choice, subscribe to us on there. Tell friends and family about it. Um, spread the word. And we also have a YouTube channel because a lot of people um, were complaining and said they wanted to see just videos. And so we're going to emphasize that more with the videos on our official Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum YouTube channel. And so um, I urge everyone to subscribe. Tell your friends and family. We have a broad variety of people. On them. We have activists, politicians, professors, authors, people who do community service work, just lots of different types of ideologies. But we sort of operate outside of um, the red and the blue team politics, which um, I know Constance probably already knows about. We discussed that previously. But um, again, I appreciate you uh, spending your time of your day to talk with us today. Sorry, yes, I was, I muted myself while you were going through some of your uh, your factors of your show. But yes, no, thank you so much for having me back again. Uh, I am honored to be episode number two and just as much more honored to be episode number 40 today. So thank you so much, Kiko, for doing this. Yes, absolutely. And again, um, my international listeners will get a lot of um, benefit from this too because issues are universal, um, whether they're local, state level, national, and provinces or whatever. Um, we have about a third of our viewership and listenership from outside of the United States. So we have a pretty large platform now. We're ranked in the top 250 of podcasts in Austria, the country of Austria. And that was last month, according to Podchaser and Spotify statistics. But um, I did have a question for Constance, and that is, why are you running for the mayor of Knoxville, considering that you just came off a gubernatorial race um, in the state of Tennessee? I'm curious. 
Uh, because we know that unfortunately, or we know unfortunately to get real changes in our country and I'm sure countries abroad, like you said. So shout out to the international team. I got friends all over the international space. I want to take a moment and shout out uh, my brother Calvin Taylor Skinner and his wife Alicia Jones, who is a doctoral professor at Cambridge University, London. So shout out to the homies in the UK. I also want to shout out to the DR Congo. Uh, some of the refugee community here in Knoxville is from the DR Congo community. And so shout out to you guys in that way. Uh, and also shout out to my Caribbean family. You know, I'm cool with some of my Jamaican Virgin Islands homies and all those types of folks. So shout out to you guys, too. So, yeah, real quick to the international homies. What's up? Uh, and so, yes, I'm running for uh, mayor because uh, as I was running for governor of Tennessee, we have real problems and real issues in Tennessee. Uh, shout out to the justices, right? Like they kind of blew the lid off now. The world is watching Tennessee and realizing, ooh, Tennessee, you got some issues with white supremacy and racism too. Uh, and so the concerns are still the same as it was with statewide. You know, my, my, my reason for running for governor was based off of what was happening in my local community anyways. It was seeing the ground root, grassroots trench work of the many lives that have been impacted by poor policy, uh, by people who are not really related to, or more importantly, disconnected to the communities that they claim that they represent. Um, and of course, the marginalized, under-resourced, and the poor demographic and Black voices especially are not properly raised up, and our concerns are normally diminished or dismissed. And so that was still the same motivation for running for uh, governor. It's the same motivation for running for mayor. Uh, however, in Knoxville, it's a little bit more personal, right? This is my hometown. This is my community. This is my native uh, born and raised area in America. And so in Knoxville, when I look at a 47% poverty rate in just the black demographic in this city, I still know I need to run for office. When I see 60% of my homeless population being made up of folks who are pushed out of their homes due to affordability, I know I still need to run for my city and my community in Knoxville. When we have medical deserts, when we have food deserts, when I got elderly folks telling me that they're more concerned, their biggest fear is not being able to survive a 30 or 45 minute road trip to the nearest hospital because our, our current administration has been closing hospitals versus trying to find ways to keep them open. This is continue to be the indicators that I need to run for office because when we get in office, that's the legislative power, that's the legislative body, that's where the real uh, pen to the paperwork is done. Uh, and more importantly, that is where we really start to impact changes that can improve, or in some cases, as we know currently, with some of the conditions in our country can be devastating to people's lives. And so uh, given the fact that we have the legislative, judicial, and um, executive branch, uh, I chose the executive branch because it was about seeking autonomous powership, uh, having that executive order and that veto power uh, to be in the way, or more importantly, to pass legislation uh, that we're not getting passed uh, where, you know, if I was governor of Tennessee right now, we wouldn't be talking about lax gun legislation because I would have already used executive power to pass some type of form of legislation with the basis of what now Billy is going to do, which is background checks on all levels and some red flag laws. He should have been done that. Uh, and then more importantly, of course, you know, when we talk about things uh, uh, with the Democratic and the, and the Black Caucus and those issues that they've been having on the House Hill legislation. Again, if I was governor of Tennessee, we wouldn't be dealing with these issues because I would have been used either veto or uh, executive power to shut things down. Like we wouldn't have been having uh, our state legislator trying to overtake Mason City and still in Black farmers land right now for for over blue office if I was governor of Tennessee because I would have realized that's harm that we're doing and we can't do it that way. Or more importantly, we would have been able to get some type of reimbursement from Ford because you're using our resources, but you are taking land from black people. And we know that black people are some of the lowest landowners in the nation. So Ford would have to do something to reimburse that. But it wouldn't be the way that the state legislature is doing it right now. Uh, and so understanding the executive uh, branch of power 
and realizing, okay, I didn't get in the governorship, but I can get in the mayorship and I can do community land trust to address things like harm that's been done with the gentrification and urban renewal and stealing black land in our communities. I can do something about the 47% poverty rate. I can do something about the 60% homeless and affordable housing issue. I can address our medical and food deserts on the local level and maybe use that as an uplifting platform as you are acknowledging 26 when I run again. Hopefully this will be more of the substance that some of the voters around the state told us through our feedback after we ran that they want to see more experience under my belt. Well, hopefully with this mayorship and me winning this year and being able to do the same things I would do as a governor as I'm going to do for the mayorship when I come back around 26, maybe more voters be convinced that I am the right candidate for the job. So those are some of my basic reasons for running for mayor in Knoxville. Yes, um, I knew that you still had um, political ambitions and ambitions to run for public office, um, even after um, this past gubernatorial race, which you came in fourth place. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I think at the very least, um, you don't go in wanting to lose, but you take a lot from those experiences. You, you know, things are life experiences. And I think that was your first time running for public office, if I'm not correct. Correct. This will be my second time ever running for public office. Uh, as you already highlighted, Black Coffee Justice, my 501c4 social justice organization that I'm proud to say to be a founder of, uh, my team, though, the collective organization and the board members, uh, we were at one point endorsing candidates, looking for those people-based candidates that will focus on the issues that I just highlight, like the poverty rate, the homeless rate, the affordability rate, uh, you know, the things that we need to see in our in our communities that makes them thrive versus, you know, some of the things that we've seen that impact and actually creates harm to our communities. Uh, and so that was how we really have been in the political arena. So just for the record for folks, no, I've been in the political arena work for almost 10 plus years. Uh, but for the last two years, I've decided to run for public office versus being endorsements uh, that we normally have done in the past. Yes, um, absolutely. So this question, I said, because you told me on camera that there isn't really a political affiliation issue with this particular mayoral race in Knoxville because it's a nonpartisan position is what you were saying? Yeah, the city races for Knoxville are nonpartisan races at this time. Uh, they have, those county races are partisan, but the city races at this time are nonpartisan races. And um, even though they say that, um, just with the documentation, we know that India King Canning, your opponent, um, is a Democrat, affiliates with the Democratic Party. You affiliate as an independent. Um, and I know that it's nonpartisan, but how do you um, see your visibility being from that city um, being different from when you were running as governor? Do you think that that visibility being from the area helps? And have you been contacted by Wake 6 News or anyone Locally. Yeah. So first off, yes, it's different being in the mayor race from your hometown than it's been in the governor race in your state. Uh, we're talking about 95 counties. We're talking about three regions, east, middle and west. Uh, and the irony is that even though I was a newbie candidate and uh, I think it's important to highlight that I finished first place out of nine candidates. Like people, some people don't think, oh, it's just one through four. No, it was nine candidates. And I finished fourth place as a rookie ever. And all the people I ran against had previously ran for different races of different seats, whether it was state or local races. These were experienced or what we would call seasoned candidates. I was the rookie in the crowd and I still finished fourth overall. 
I think it's important also to highlight that we pulled over 10,000 grassroots states around the around, I'm sorry, grassroots votes around the state. And out of 95 counties, first off, we were present in all 95 counties. I mean, someone voted for me in every single county in the state. But uh, what was indicated by the numbers is that out of the 95, 18 of those states, we could have, I'm sorry, 18 of those counties, we could have actually swung in our advantage to win. Like we could have won 18 counties potentially. Uh, and so just a little bit of data behind the governor race. Now, the difference is obviously run the mayor race. As you highlighted, I'm an activist. I'm an advocate here. I've done a lot of work when it comes to anti-Thompson Jr., police body cameras, uh, accountability for our taxpayers' dollars, uh, getting uh, laptops for our students, highlighting the issues around broadband and accessibility for our lower income communities, uh, you know, on the front lines with our uh, wealth interest based uh development and gentrification of the urban renewal and how it's been harmful to our communities. We have worked, we have addressed uh, or worked with issues around homelessness. We have helped our single mothers and our uh, lower income, disabled and elderly families and community members. Uh, you know, I do full line care service here. So it's a little different running in your hometown where you do the work. Like people see that grassroots trench work. They see your feet pounding the pavement. Uh, and so the recognition is a lot different. I don't have to compete there anymore. Like that's not an issue. People know who I am. People know about my race and there are a lot of people who are very excited about the race uh we had a petition filled up again you know uh once again in 67 slots on the petition i filled up every single slot on the petition so i, I definitely were able to easily uh get support for my campaign and my race uh by getting the voters to vet the petition for me and filled it right up uh and it only took us two weeks to do that by the way so the deadline is may we're well ahead deadline at this point i turned my petition in almost two weeks uh, a week or so ago uh, but only two weeks after it had been released, we literally had it filled up. Um, and so as far as the news go, now the news has been interesting still. Um, the news has talked about the race. They have highlighted the candidates that they know at this time that are qualified for the petition, which is myself, Indy Kincannon. Uh, and there is a gentleman who supposedly is going to run uh, off of the Democrat, I'm sorry, the Republican affiliation. Uh, I, I cannot think of his name off the top of my head, but at this time, we do know at this time, at least three people will be on the ballot for the mayor race with Indy Kincannon being the incumbent, obviously. Um, but in all honesty, Kiko, I still feel like it's the same kind of format, still trying to block me out, still trying to shut me out. Uh, it's been more of the columnist writers of the various papers in our city that have kind of really been elevating the uh, the mayor race, particularly Arthur Ashe. I think he's done a really good job at highlighting the mayor candidates and what's going on. Uh, Brian Hornback, he's another one that's done a really good job of highlighting all the candidates across the board who have qualified for the ballot. Uh, and then some of the folks in the compass uh, and then some of the Knoxville New Signal folks have also kind of highlighted some of our, our race candidates and some of the people in it. But as far as somebody actually calling me for our own record statement or actually saying, hey, we want to sit down and really confirm you as a candidate for the mayor race in our public media, that has not happened. They're still catering a lot of their attention around Indian King Cannon. Uh, but like I said, it's okay because in this particular race locally, uh, the community members and voters are noticing that and they're kind of been the kind of call out on that. Like, hey, Constance and we're running too. We find it interesting news that you're not highlighting her race. And more importantly, uh, you know, that sticks out. And we, we see y'all trying to galvanize around India, but people are sick of India. And so, you know, that's, again, just a difference of being a local race uh, where more awareness of your platform and your voice is uh, present. And more importantly, the people paying attention to how the media is moving around the race, kind of see how they're trying to do that shutout thing that they try to do in the governor race and this mayor race as well. Absolutely. And I asked that question because... Um... I know that visibility is super key to any um, sort of success in um, 
a political campaign, you know, whether it's local, state, national level, international, whatever it is. And um, when I think of people on the state level, especially, but your situation isn't a partisan, but just to make this comparison, uh, there's like a handful of situations where someone who was running outside of the DNR actually won and Jesse Ventura won the governor of Minnesota. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, there's like a handful of examples like that. But I asked that because five months ago, they gave her, like there's a whole article dedicated to the mayor race when she was the only one that was declared um, in it when she ran her reelection campaign five months ago. And there's a big write-up in Wait Six on the, the news site and stuff. And that's why I was asking, has, it, has anyone approached you from that same organization that conveniently wanted to interview you when George Floyd was murdered? And then I bet they were all over you then. Wanted mm -hmm. to, they gave you like a long format interview and everything. But now yeah. that you're in the same city, you're from that city, representing that city. But where are they to be found now when you're running for the mayor of the same city? I agree. I totally agree. You're right. When I did the George Floyd protest, it was all on me. When I did the, the 2020 Juneteenth event, really brought Knoxville's Juneteenth back. Like there had been a history of Juneteenth here, but for a long time, it had been um, uh, obsolete. Like they had just stopped participating. And then in 2020, I brought it back and it was huge. They were all on me then. Um, when we had the Anthony Thompson Jr. protest down here, with what happened to that young brother? They were on me then. Actually today, I want to take a time and shout out uh, Anthony Thompson Jr. It is his anniversary date today. Today we are officially two years from the murder of Anthony Thompson Jr. in Austin's high school's bathroom uh, by the hands of Knoxville Police Department. Uh, and you're right, they were all on me then when that happened. But then it was like when I ran for governor, it was almost like uh-uh, you can't do that. That's that's the no-no. You can't do that. And so it was like when the Republican and Democratic parties of our state, and maybe even that on the national level, who knows how far it went up to say shut her out, but. They were adamant about shutting my voice out of the campaign or out of the out of the gubernatorial electional cycle. And so I feel like I'm just kind of getting a little bit of rebuff from that because since wait, since we're told not to cover it then, it's almost like they're doing the same thing right now. Uh, and which is an issue, right? Because media is supposed to be, they're supposed to be unbiased and they're supposed to be nonpartisan about everything they're due. Their job is to get the journalism and the facts out to the public so the public can make their own opinion. The public can make their own decision. The public can uh, gain their own perspective and their own ideals about a person or a candidate for office based off of the information that they're supplying. But when you only put one person on there or two people total because they're the party members, that's all you want to talk about, uh, that is problematic. And as we know, uh, that is, again, an issue with media in itself. And, and that's why I appreciate platforms like yours who try to maintain independency space. Uh, shout out to Tracy Carson out there in the uh, Indianapolis area. She tries to do the same thing. Uh, and then, you know, several other places like John Lewis show down in Texas. You know, he was really good about highlighting my campaign for uh, governor. And uh, the homie up in Dion and Affair in Massachusetts. I was all the way on radio in Massachusetts for the governor race. Like, it's crazy how my local and my state level media try to shut me out. But it was like when they did that it's like the it's like the national and the international scene though embraced us i mean let's not forget barbara lee tweeted my campaign for governor like she highlighted the five black women who were running at that time uh, when she put a tweet out about saying hey america vote for these black women for office you know we we know stacy abram was kind of the black woman governor candidate face but there were several black women in 2020 that ran for office and it could have been crazy if all five of us could have got those seats you know how historical that would have been for this country for that to happen uh and so you know this is where media is obviously a due diligence here and it's unfortunate that in today's era of media it is just such a distrust and undue uh, uh this this disingenuous 
uh, cycle that we're dealing with with our media and how they're really broadcasting the information to the public now. Yes, um, you mentioned Tracy Carson. Shout out to Tracy Carson. Um, mm -hmm. After this interview publishes, which is going to be very, very soon. I'm not playing around, you guys, with these episodes. They're coming out like that. And uh, we should have episode 50 um, by the beginning of next month with, with my dad coming onto the show. But I want to give a shout out to Tracy because we're going to do um, a cooperation with the presidential upcoming cycle with only independent candidates and people outside of the two-party system. And so she's going to help me with that and maybe another channel. And um, Trace is probably going to interview you after this because I'm not I'm not hating on her. I like it when people are doing that. That means that you have good quality stuff and people see that quality and they want to pick up on their quality and improve their quality too. So she will mo most likely reach out to you after this interview um, like she's done with people in the past. And so I have no issue with that. I think it's great. The more visibility, the better. Um, and that's kind of the premise of her show. My show is a little bit different. But um, I do include um, people who are actively in office and, and former people in office. Something you said about the visibility, and this is also something you have to combat with the visibility. You have these people like the Tennessee Holler, which I don't. Again, mm -hmm. it's clear that they run cover for Democrats. And mm -hmm. so if you don't align with them, they don't want to highlight you. There's no reason why the Tennessee Holler shouldn't have picked you up mm -hmm. for all this activity at mm -hmm. all, just because you don't affiliate with Democrats, mm -hmm. um, which is not completely true because you have done work with Black Heart for Justice and, mm -hmm. and endorse Democrats to have like-minded view on certain issues that you advocate. Mm -hmm. But um, mm -hmm. I just think that that's a disservice too for people to blacklist people and, mm -hmm. and basically censor people because they know who you are and mm -hmm. they're pretending not to know you are. You retweet their stuff, but mm -hmm. there's not that reciprocity at all to where they're trying to help your elevation. Yeah, you know, Tennessee Holler has always been problematic. Like you said, they have become like the Democratic, I guess, um, uh, party's free media type ordeal. Uh, but like you said before, I do retweet their stuff because they do have valuable information. Like I said, with our state legislator being a super majority of Republicans, I'll give Tennessee Holler that. They do great at exposing these corrupted politicians up on our state hill for the things that they're doing. Uh, so I will never knock their word. But like you said, the problem is that at the same time, because I'm not pro-Democrat, you shut me out. You blacklist me. Like you said, y'all know who I am. Y'all see the work I'm doing. You know, uh, matter of fact, recently on one of the posts that the Tennessee Holler put up, uh, talking about guns, something or good. They put some data about the guns. I actually went back and dropped the video. Like, oh, I ran a whole video on gun issues in Tennessee, and I dropped the video for the receipt, like the show date and everything. Like, if y'all was really serious about gun violence, uh, talk, uh, Tennessee Holler, then you would pick my platform up because I literally was talking about gun violence on my uh, governor platform. Uh, and so, you know, it's just like you said, it's ironic to see the contradiction of these organizations. And more importantly, my other issue with the Tennessee Holler is that they don't hold Democrats accountable for their actions. Like, let's be real. Black caucus, if you was doing what you're supposed to be doing, which the majority of them are Democrats, then we don't even have the justices even happening because y'all would have already been raising the ruckus. Y'all would have already been bringing the news to the, to the House to bring out the obvious issues of the racism and supremacy and discrimination of power they're using against Democrats, period, on the Hill. Y'all would have stood at the well with them instead of being on the video arguing with the boys at the well. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, we got problems also with the Democrat Party in Tennessee Holler. That's what makes, again, when we talk about journalism, that's what makes you problematic. And that's why I said that at this point, a lot of the media is just that, media. Journalism is an un 
biased work. And that's why I also like Tennessee Outlook. Tennessee Outlook to me has journalists. They go in, they get to the facts, they they do the interviews with the opposite side and the the, the side that the that the public may agree with. They bring it all to the table and then they write solid art argue uh, sorry uh, articles based on the facts of information that they receive. That's a real journalist organization. Uh, but you know when I look at Tennessee Holler things like this, I look at these organizations as media and more like media bloggers. Like they're really good at creating. Um, clickbait titles and things to get people to follow through. You know, they do good with video evidence, obviously, to show the receipts so people don't be like, you just made that up. They do do good with having video receipts. But at the end of the day, when they're not holding the Democratic Party just as accountable as the Republican Party for the failures and the shortcomings in our city, or more importantly, the lack of performance of our elected officials, uh, that is the other concern I have for the Tennessee Hollers. So I'm like you too. Like, it is disingenuous for them as well how they operate in their media spaces. Yes, and... um. I did want to expand on something you referenced earlier. I actually want you to go into detail towards the end, so we were dedicated a little bit towards the end. I want my audience to know about the Anthony Thomas Jr. Thompson Jr. story. I don't want mm -hmm. to be just kind of like um, anecdotal because I know you have um, a lot of insight into that, and you mm -hmm. probably know his family and stuff. And so I want my audience to know exactly the context of that and what happened with that. Um, so we'll save that towards the end. But I want to ask you, um, are you running on the same issues as you did as governor? And your three main issues, according to Ballotpedia, were the Poor People's Campaign, Future is Change, and Legalizing Cannabis. Is that going to be something that we can expect when you run for mayor of Knoxville? Yes. Uh, so I'm still advocating strongly for the poor people issues and concerns. Uh, I am going to legalize cannabis in Knoxville. I'm going to make sure that my police department worry about the other issues. We have a real gun violence issue going on in our city. We have a lot of uh, drug dealers, especially from the Detroit area. You know, the the, the cross-trafficking of the drug game is coming really tough through our, our city and state right now. Uh, and then, you know, we have major corruption issues internally in our police department. Uh, as we all are, as some of you may have heard, for whatever reason, the current uh, mayor, Andy Kincannon, thought it was appropriate to hire a police chief out of New Orleans Police Department. If anybody knows about New Orleans, we all know that's one of the worst departments in America right now. Uh, I don't care about what they caught us and trying to do. They're only doing that stuff because federal government is watching them and telling them to do these things. So let's be realistic. They didn't take the initiative to do it on their own. They were told to do these things. And so as far as I'm concerned, they're still one of the most corrupted departments in America. And for some reason, our... Mayor Indy Kincannon thought it was appropriate to bring in a corrupted police chief from one of the most corrupted departments into our police department as a cleanup guy. That is the irony of it. Uh, and, and the sad part is, is that things have still been happening under his watch. Again, Lisa Edwards. If you don't know about Lisa Edwards, we'll kind of I'll kind of put that all in towards the end. I'm not gonna go too deep in it, but look up Lisa Edwards. She's a poor white woman who was out with, with without insurance, who died on the cold concrete ground, was that was negligently denied care because we have inconsiderate people working on police force who thought that this woman, for whatever reason, the kicker is nobody's a doctor, nobody's a medical expert, but under their personal uh, perspective of this woman who was clearly in medical distress, they decided that she didn't need medical help and that she was making it up. Well, I mean, we saw the cruelty, the jokes of, oh, here's a cigarette when she's asking for her inhaler. When they're telling her to get into the van, she's telling them, I'm disabled. I cannot move my body. I had a stroke. You know, so we saw this cruelty. And this is under the Paul Noel police chief from New Orleans. So this is problematic. And so, yes, these, these are still some of my top priority issues. Uh, and of course, as I've already highlighted, uh, this time I will be raising up a stronger platform for black citizens, especially black constituents of Knoxville. As I highlighted at the beginning of this conversation, in Knoxville, 
the poverty rate just for the black people. We ain't talking about nobody else in the city. We're talking about just the black demographic of Knoxville. We are in a 47% poverty rate. The average black Knoxvillean makes $20,000 or less a year. And so that is, that's crisis status. That is called a crisis status. When you have one demographic making under $20,000 a year and they're representing 47% of the pop of the population of poverty in your city, we have a serious problem going on in that particular space. And so I'm going to have to definitely heavily uplift the issues around poverty and especially black poverty in Knoxville this year. Uh, so we'll be talking a whole lot about the black experience and the black issues of the city, uh, given the fact I am black and I am from Knoxville and I know what it's like to be black in Knoxville. So I'll be championing a lot of the black issues on this particular mayor platform this year. Uh, and then, of course, last but not least, we have to address housing affordability here. Uh, again, our housing market is one of the hottest and highest in the in the country. Um, we just found out, like I said before, that 60 percent of our homeless community is made up of people who cannot afford their homes, meaning that they were pushed out or lost their homes literally due to the fact they could not afford the rent or the mortgage anymore. Uh, and there are better ways that we can do this. It's, it's ridiculous that our city has allowed developers to come in and claim this eminent domain type demeanor space over our, over our properties in our city. Uh, and, you know, they're selling them at dirt cheap. I mean, we have some of the wealthiest men in this city with the Claytons, Haslam's, and the boys been able to buy property for a dollar and ten dollars. No, that's where we make some money for this city. That's where we get our money back. We say, no, you can afford the $10 million ticket for the land. So you need to pay that. And maybe for the uh, single mom who's trying to find livelihood and living space for her her family, she's the one that gets the dollar for the property. Let's flip how we're doing the business around here. Uh, and so we need to do things like rent and price craps. We need to do... Um, Pimps, uh, uh, pimps, which is percent income payment plans. We need to strengthen tenant rights, uh, and more. And and last but not least, we need to turn our renters to homeowners because when you own the land, you're less likely to be what booted off the land. And the kicker is, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Shout out to New York Attorney General who wrote who brought down some really strict tenant right policy uh, this year for the New York area. And I like how they're going with it. They are actually re uh, protecting and empower tenants in 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 New York and their living situation. And so we can literally take a script right out of their book of what they've done and just add it to what we want to do right here in Knoxville. So these are some of my prime issues, as well as public transportation, as well as uh, food scarcities, as well as health care disparities and scarcities, uh, and as well as the fact uh, moving our city to zero waste. Uh, there is no reason for us to continue to be having trash in Tennessee, or for that matter, in Knoxville. So I will be moving us to a green energy initiative, which is going to uh, total uh, compost and total recycle. We don't have to do trash anymore in Knoxville. And so I will be moving us towards a green initiative energy uh, uh, energy uh, uh, um, agenda, which is uh, total zero waste in Knoxville by moving us to compost and uh, recycle material going forward only. So you're saying that that wouldn't be a need for any of the local trash pickup anymore? Is that what you're saying? Right, right, right. We will be going total compost and zero waste. And so how it will work is that moving forward, people will get two trash cans, one for your food and then one for your recycled materials, your papers, your plastic. You know, everything we pretty much have now is recyclable. And so they will have two trash cans where one where they dump the, the hamburger meat from the barbecue last night. But the kicker is don't dump the aluminum foil that you cooked the hamburger meat on. Put that in your recyclable bin instead. And so what they'll have is probably... Uh, two trash pickups a week where one of the pickups are for your recyclables and one of the pickups are for your your um for your compost and so we'll be taking the we'll be setting up our facilities for our recyclable and compost uh, center 
Uh, and that is how we will operate moving forward. And we know that this will create triple the jobs that we currently have in our trash system versus when we go zero waste. Like we're going to double whatever the job market is in our in our um, in our trash, in our uh, in our sanitation uh, job force in the city. We will be increasing that number by double whatever it is now because uh, compost and uh, recyclables and green energy actually creates more jobs than our current outdated archaic model of using uh oil and coal refinery methods of energy and, and, and waste reduction. Okay, so as far as the composting, is that something that each citizen is going to be responsible for? Or is that something that the city is going to handle? And and if they do handle it as a city, um, what what's going to be the alternative to like the landfill situation right now? So uh, the city is going to take that initiative. Like I said, okay. instead of we're going to do composting and recycle. So that is a city initiative. That's why I said we will provide the cans and everything to our citizens uh, and, and even make sure we mark them appropriately, right? Like one's going to say food and one's going to say recyclables. Like, I mean, now, like, you know, you go to these, uh, you know, some of these more recently updated facilities and what you do, you walk in, they have one where it says trash, one that says recyclables, and then one that says compost. And, I mean, they do it kind of now already. We're just going to go full scale with it. Uh, and then as far as the landfills, yeah, that is the next initiative. That's why I said we're going to create jobs because when one team is running the daily cycles through the city and picking up the compost and the recyclables through the communities, another team will be doing the landfill, bringing in the landfill stuff and running through the facility. And so my goal is that by the time I'm done as the mayor of Knoxville, we will not only be a 100% zero waste uh, city, but more importantly, we will have at least 50%, if not more, of our landfill waste also cleaned up and taken care of as well with this com with this compost recyclable center. Okay. I appreciate you clarifying that because um, th that's something that I've tried to bring more into the form of environmental consciousness. Um, we had Tina Landis on episode 35. I recommend people listen to that episode 35. Uh, her book is called Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. And mm -hmm. it gives... Um, and it all it talks about basically how this is possible. We can reverse climate change. It has nothing to do with um, if you believe in the science or not. It has nothing. The science is the science. And the problem is that our system benefits from um, these wasteful ways of, of doing things in the name of money. Mm -hmm. Their version of green is the green bag, not the green mm -hmm. economy. And so mm -hmm. there are ways to basically just... If people read that book, it's a very um, smooth read, three hours maybe, and it talks about how you can reverse climate change if everyone on, is on the same page. But um, mm -hmm. that's good to hear these kind of initiatives come from you, um, mm -hmm. especially on the local level. And maybe that can be a template for other cities, you know, other states and, you know, other mm -hmm. regions. Um, we really mm -hmm. have to become more conscious when it comes to environment. And um, I understand that. I've been guilty of that in the past. Um, not being environmentally conscious, but maybe not prioritizing it the same way, because um, there are issues outside of that that we have to deal with. I mean, you talk about the human element and um, the, the police brutality, um, the mm -hmm. crime in the city. So so I understand that we prioritize different things, but we can also do things at the same time, too, and uh, benefit everyone, too, as well. Um so do you cover everything with the Poor People's Campaign? Because that's from Martin Luther King, right? Is that where yeah. that's from? Yeah, I was like, yeah, the originator of the Poor People's Campaign was Martin Luther King. You know, when he goes through the first wave of the civil rights after, this is basically post-integration, 
uh, and he sees how the integration process unfolds, he realizes that's not the answer either, right? Because we got to get some money. He realizes that we need economical integration or we need economical separation. Uh, I, that's why I tell folks, you know, it's important to listen to MLK's last speech. I call it the burning house speech because that's what it was. Uh, and he does a great job at highlighting how, you know, white America made us want their peripheral waters, right? That's what he called. That's the language he actually uses to describe it. And he's like, but the issue with that is that while we were trying to get our hands under their water, we sacrificed so much of what we already had. We gave up our clothing shops. We gave up our grocery stores. We gave up our schools. We gave up everything we had because we were so worried about trying to get the same water the white folks was drinking out of their cup. Uh, and so uh, when he comes back from that understanding of integration, failed his, failed his movement, basically, he comes back and is like, you know what? I need to find a way to get poor white folks involved because what poor white people need to understand is that while y'all be waving them Trump Yankee Doodle flags, Trump does not care about you. He's a multi-millionaire. So he uses symbolism like he does in our communities, right? Like when they come in and want to slap uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's name on a condominium complex that's starting rent at $2,000, that's symbolism, Black folks. That ain't built for us. They want to use our, our ancestors' name because that's profit for them. But the reality is that you got some symbolism at the end of the day because none of us that look like him are going to live there. And it's the same thing with the, with the poor white folks. Trump is out here telling y'all white power, white supremacy, white this, white that, and you're buying into it. But the problem is that that's symbolism because when it's time for you to go to buy your groceries, you're just as much an unaffordable in line as I am. When you got to go to the pump and pay $3 in gas, you're just as mad and frustrated as I am. You're also trying to figure out how you're going for lights and the rent and the food and your son basketball shoes this month. And so it's, it's detrimental to get poor white people to understand that you're being sold a symbolistic uh, narrative and messaging as well, too. And more importantly, your struggle aligns with the black struggle because the same needs that you are not having been met or lacking in is the same thing that's happening in the black neighborhoods and the black communities, too. And so that was the poor people campaign, helping poor white people understand the correlation of their issues with the black struggle movement in itself. Yes, um, interest, that's very interesting. Thanks for clarifying that because um, it's something that I don't claim to, um, because I know people know who MLK is and who he was, but um, I never really knew what the Poor People's Campaign was. And so that makes that makes sense right there because um, I, I know more about Malcolm X and, and Marcus Gardner. Mm -hmm those types of people, but I actually know less of MLK because I feel like he's used, you know, now for different agendas um, to, to create these illusions, but we know that if you analyze it a little bit more, that it's not as pretty as they portray it. <laughs> oh, no, this is the MLK one of the most whitewashed ancestors we honestly have, and like you said, they have, and it's because, you know, we know MLK uh, let a lot of white pastors and things like that join the marches and the movement uh, because this was another way that he knew using media as his outlet to show the violence of America against black people. He was like, yeah, let the white pastors march because if the media sees the white pastors been marching and then they see the, the same white officers even bashing the white pastors in the head with the baton because they're marching with black people for their struggle. He knew that that was going to do what? Create outrage, create trigger responses, create uh, the world to come and say, America, what in the hell are you over there doing? And so these were all strategies of his that he used. But that unfortunately is the issue too because he's dead now. And as we know, it's not just white folks, even black people are hopping on the bandwagon. They know MLK without any verification. 
validation or more important validation of such relationships. And so, you know, we, we know that, but, you know, shout out to the black community. Uh, I've watched over the last few years and more importantly, I feel like last year was one of the biggest years I've seen where black people are starting to reclaim that narrative. Like, no, we're going to talk about the radical M. Okay. The one that y'all don't like to talk about. Y'all always want to talk about, Oh, how he was kumbaya this and kumbaya that. But then y'all don't want to talk about the fact that in the Birmingham letters, he calls out the white modern white liberals directly for being problematic. Y'all don't want to talk about the three evil speech where he flat out says America and the way they do things is evil and practice in itself. And now you want to take the evilness that y'all do here uh, uh, abroad to other countries. Like, you know, y'all don't talk about the things that he called this country out for. Y'all want to keep it cute, like you said, and keep it pretty. But we got to tell the truth. This man's work is uh, going without due diligence when you try to whitewash him and, and, and reduce him down to what, what, what white comfort will itself versus the radicalization of what MLK actually was and why we honor him in the first place. Within this context, we talked about um, accessibility with media and visibility earlier. Um, I've followed you for a while now, like even before we uh, knew each other personally, um, because I caught traction of you during the George Floyd pro protest in 2020 and um, and that activity with the Juneteenth event. I think you went on, uh, was it Jared Ball's program? I miss what I like. And you had mm -hmm. like a I mean, I I knew who you were was I think because I listened to Black Power Media and and that group, and I've mm -hmm. had Jared on the show, but um, have has anyone outside of Lord Seth interviewed you like that that wasn't black? Like it has 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 that been your only interview where there wasn't a black person that interviewed you? I find that interesting. Or are, are those people not reaching out to you, or, or what's the situation? So Lord Self interviewed me. He was white. Brian Hornback interviewed me. He was white. Okay. Uh, so you have had white people interview. Yeah. yeah. Jared down there in the Chattanooga area, he interviewed me. Uh, he was white. Um, and I I know I I did speak with uh, a few folks from around the state during the governor campaign. Uh, like a guy in Johnson City, a news reporter up there, he interviewed me. He was white. Okay. Uh, and out of Nashville interviewed me too and he was white so no I, I had some white media in interviews I did I did okay I, I guess I guess the black ones keep popping up when I check your <laughs> your media yeah they were the ones that was constantly like hitting me up like yo yeah you wanna do okay yeah. yeah but no but but no but but you're definitely getting visibility from from all angles and stuff because I know um people will say that there's not um, a perception, but there is because even in the black media space, not especially if you're an independent and you're black, it can be a very lonely place sometimes. If you don't have an affiliation with a mm -hmm. political party, it can be mm -hmm. kind of lonely. And mm -hmm. and you may find a handful of people who are doing that kind of work because everyone else is, I mean, you have these people like B. Tatum, the Candace mm -hmm. Owen types, they're clearly Republicans. And then mm -hmm. you have the clearly Democrat people, but you don't have other people who are interviewing. Like, I'll be honest with you. You said something earlier. Um, I have thought about it clearly. I don't platform people running for public office within the two-party system. Mm -hmm. Because I view them as the same. And precisely for the reasons why they blacklist other people, I don't give them any more shine than they have. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be typical to my program and to my philosophy, I think we need to get outside of those systems because they don't have any accountability. And um, speaking of accountability, that's something that I'm kind of curious about with it comes to when it comes to social justice, policing, 
Um, Democrats, to me, have um, really used this issue um, as a way to get political points. Mm -hmm. Analyze it more. I'm saying to myself, okay, I heard Gloria, what's her name? Gloria Jenkins, Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you've interviewed her before. Um, she said that she was for no knock warrants, which is fine. That's good. That, but, I mean, we know that's how Breonna Taylor was murdered. I mean, they didn't right. even knock on the door. And then right. it was at the wrong place and stuff. Um, right. And she said something about military equipment. I hear Democrats saying this stuff and ending racism and accountability. But what does accountability mean? Does that mean ending immunity law? Because I know that you're for ending immunity law. Mm -hmm. To me, that's mm -hmm. what real accountability is. Instead mm -hmm. of the body cams and stuff, to mm -hmm. me, those are just minor reforms because they can take their body cams off. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so where do you stand on that when it comes to the violence in Knoxville, especially towards um, disenfranchised communities? Yeah, I think this is like you're going to hit on a key point that I feel like in the Knoxville community that has been talked about when you talk about Gloria Johnson and how she is part of Tennessee three and really campaigning or championing a space where gun violence is the issue and where uh, racism and white supremacy are a factor. But then the outrage that we're seeing in our community is how she didn't do that for us. Like you said, we had a whole Anthony Thompson Jr. here. Boy, you didn't advocate for Anthony. You didn't advocate for more accountability from the police. You didn't advocate for the ending of gun violence. Because let's keep in mind, before Anthony, we already had five other teenagers die in the Knoxville community from gun violence directly. I didn't see India, I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't see Gloria a champion a call for gun reform and things of that nature. And so there is a problem here. Again, the optics, I, I, you're hitting on the optic factor. Like you said, the Democrats are great at using buzzwords to, like you said, gain political points. Uh, here's a big one. People should prepare coming in probably this, probably if not this next cycle, that's definitely the president and the next round of state and federal cycles. Be prepared for Democrats to start yelling out reparations. I, I, I feel that coming. I feel that coming down the pipeline where they're going to try to play this, this wordplay game of reparations and things. And I feel like, you know, we kind of already fell for that once before with Joe Biden. I feel like Joe Biden tried to play a little reparation game, game wordplay with us and stuff. And so we've seen this already. Like you said, the Democrats are great at Pulling those heartstring issues. Oh, gun violence. Oh, reparations. Oh, uh, accountability. But then, you know, when they get in office, I'm just going to use Joe Biden because that's the big Democrat face right now. He got in office and he didn't give us police immunity. He didn't give us Breonna Taylor's door knocking law. He didn't give us George Floyd. I can't breathe law. The minimum, right? And then you keep going, right? And then when we were calling for the fund of police, what did he say? No, more police, more money, more all of this type of stuff. And so it's like, okay, uh, for Black America especially, you got play. Because let's be honest, if Stacey Abrams didn't tell Black America to vote for that man, we wouldn't be voting for that man. Let's just be straight up about that. That's how he got his seat. Black America gave him that seat. And the fact that he has basically backslapped us in our faces when it comes to our issues being need to be met is problematic. And here's the kicker, Joe Biden. You don't get a pass. You ain't going to be able to say, well, I couldn't have done that because you did it for the Asians, you did it for the LBGQ, and you did it for the Afghanis. But with the black folks who are living right here in your country, suffering daily, you have done absolutely nothing for us. And so to me, this is where the Democrats are absolutely problematic. Uh, and this is exactly why I used to be a very loyal Democrat. Like, I'm sure we all did, right? Like, all the black folks, we grew up in our household voting Democrat, right? Uh, but, you know, as I got older, uh, and as I started getting more educated on the political system and process, and then when I started seeing the leaderships that were coming to my communities, and that's the key thing. I only saw these leaderships during election season. I didn't see them year round. They weren't hosting town halls and constantly standing in my face and informing me on what they what they were doing and what was happening. I only see them a, a, during certain times of certain periods of certain years. 
And so when I started realizing that this is a problem and I can't keep voting a Democrat in office because at the end of the day, that Democrat really does not represent me. Uh, this is where I leave the Democratic Party and move more independently uh, and be more open to, yes, vote for Republican. If he got the damn plat if he or she got the platform for it, unfortunately, a lot of times Democrat, I'm sorry, Republicans don't. Uh, but the reality is that if they gave me a Republican that was talking about the black issues, the poor issues, the veterans needs, uh, the things that I identify with, the woman, the woman fight, you know, we, we had somebody that said these things that I feel like, ooh, that's me, that aligns with me. I'm going to vote for them because that's why I'm voting for them. I'm not voting because they're red or because they're blue. I'm voting because what they said, their platform stands for. When I go look at their website and see their issues listed, those are things that I agree and align with me. That's why I'm voting for you now. Uh, and I wish more Americans would wise up in their voting education to understand that, that we got too many people voting loyalty. You know, mm -hmm. let's be, Bill Lee got his seat because of the loyal, the 30% that was loyal to the Republican Party. And the 70% that was undecided in the state, that was the problem, too. Because whether you agree or disagree, you should have checked the damn ballot. And, and, you know, and so that's how we get the state legislature that we got. Only 30% of the state voted in the 22 election cycle. That was the House and the governor. So y'all really gave them the supermajority last year when y'all 70% didn't show up. That's where we got a problem at. And that's why I said, you know, um, performances, I call these performances type ordeals because now you see all these white folks rushing to the hill because it came to their front door. Like, again, let's be honest. Black communities in America have been screaming gun violence is a problem because it's been taking out our youth and it's been taking out our men. We have been saying this is a problem. But white America ignored that, right? Oh, it don't matter to me because it ain't my house. Now these mass shootings are reoccurring all over again, and it's coming to your children's front door. So now we got Karen and, and Linda's outrage and storming the hill and like, oh, we got a problem. But where were you at? 10 years ago when Black America was saying we got a damn problem. And so that's why the Democrats look like they're performing. That's why even what happens in Tennessee looks like a performance. Because my whole thing is that if you were on that hill protesting but you didn't vote, guess what happened? You're the reason why we got gun violence in Tennessee because you literally did not vote. And so to me, that's where we got to start changing the narrative. And especially with Democrats, I think that they should be pushed harder. Uh, you know, shout out to the Breakfast Club who sat down with Justin Pearson uh, mm -hmm. a day or so. And as you saw, they challenged that brother. Like, hey, we support you, we riding with you, but then when we look at your platform, it's looking really white catering and not enough black concern on the platform. And, and mm -hmm. that's what we got to start doing as a, as a constituents, as a voter. We got to start checking these elected officials at the front door. But um, but even with that, um, there's still a mind game being played. Um, I take a hardline stance on it because it needs to be taken. Black people have to stop supporting Democrats. Um, yeah. And I say that because the Brother yeah. Club only brought him on because he was a Democrat. I don't give a fuck about Republicans. Right. I don't give a fuck about Democrats. And honestly, it's not even to degrade what happened with the school shooting. But you right. bring it up yourself, disproportionately, these things happen all the time in Black neighborhoods, all the time. Mm -hmm. And no one cares because the media doesn't want to pick on the story. And if they mm -hmm. pick up on the story they make it seem like it's a black problem mm -hmm. when black, black crime is coming all the time. They make it a race issue. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't focus on doing anything. It's not even the guns, I don't think. This happened because it's an election season. I, going back to episode one, we said that there are two issues. Well, really, there are three. When you talk about these culture war issues, first mm -hmm. of all, guns aren't going to be taken away from anybody. Guns are going to be here to stay enforced what however way you feel about guns. And mm -hmm. I've changed my views on guns over the years because um, 
if the government becomes too corrupt, I may want to be strapped. And so I think mm-hmm. that's an excuse also to um, black people going to be the first people without arms if they do decide to do something like that anyway. So people need to be careful when they say that they want to abolish guns and stuff like that. All this gun control mess comes up during the elections. Um, mm-hmm. LGBTQ comes up. And mm-hmm. those are the three. If you track these political cycles, those are the three issues mm-hmm. that they use every time. Instead of talking about homelessness that you referred to earlier, instead of talking about the environment and these mm-hmm. issues that are really affecting people, like people need to earn a living. And, mm-hmm. and inflation is right now. We're talking about all these other things to mm-hmm. update political science instead of things I think that, that need to be confronted more head on. No, I totally agree with you, Kiko. Like I said, they are great at trying to uh, silo the issues down. Uh, Like you said, they want to make it be these three. But like you said, no, it's far beyond those three. I mean, let's be honest. The LBT issue is really not impacting or affecting a lot of folks, right? Unless you're just really knee-deep in the game. But even with that, let's be honest with LBT. But, no, I mean, for real, like, let's, but I want to highlight a critical point about LBGQ, and that's why I struggle as a fellow gay black woman to get behind it. It doesn't represent me, because who's the face of LBGQ? Young white children, particularly young rich white children at that. And who's really dying in LBGQ? Black people. Oh, yeah, they're going to have a black party. A lobby. It's a lobby in itself, it's, and um, they've used, um, but there are lots of LGBTQ people that I know that don't fall in that political game, and those people become ostracized if they don't play this blue-red politics. Right. Even right. I can take advantage of them. And so that's that is also there are more people who are independent than than, than blue or red. Yeah. But what they want to do is take your independence away from you. That's the true independence. And mm-hmm. I think it goes into why people don't vote Constance is because um people are depressed. They don't believe that they don't believe politicians. They don't trust politicians. And mm-hmm. I think they need reassurance that this person is actually going to, they're one of me and they're going to help me, you know, in my personal needs. I think that's why people don't participate and why it's so low because people know that it's rigged in a way because um, it's bought out by the time you get to mm-hmm. office. I mean, they mm-hmm. invisibilize who they want to and they visualize who they want to. No, yeah, I think you hit a critical issue on the head. And this is where I've already said before, that's why we need to move from party politics into personal politics. Again, the people I'm running against right now, what they don't, what I have that they don't is what you just said. I have true personal grassroots experience. Like I said before, I have done nonprofit work for over the last 10 years. Go look at my counterparts. Look at any of my counterparts in any race. None of these people that I ran against, so, okay, the nine that I ran for uh, with the governor race and the two I got now, that's 11 candidates I don't ran against. And when you look at the 11 compared to me, what they all miss is true grassroots connection. Like I've already said in a, in a recent uh, city council meeting, that's the other thing. Look at how I participate. I go to city council meetings. I go to county commission meetings. I go to school board meetings. I go to any public meeting where an appointed or elected official is going to be present. You better believe I'm in there because I need answers on why my community and my state looking crazy right now. Uh, and so, you know, I have the grassroots work. Like I said, I do non, I do lawn care work for our elderly disabled and our single mothers. I give out fresh groceries to our families in our homes that can't afford food. I do homeless outreach every single week, making sure that the bare minimums of their personal hygiene and personal needs are met. I uh, orchestrate 
uh, community-based events from Juneteenth to the Black Lives Matter mural painting to the egg, the goose egg hunt to the kids' fun zone day. You know, I do these things and I'm connected to my community. My community can call my phone right now and I will answer the phone. They're not going to get a voicemail. They're not going to get some secretary that says, oh, I'll take a message, call you back later. It's going to be Constance every on the phone talking to you. Uh, and that is, to me, what we need moving forward. Like I said, we don't need no more rich people in office. We don't need no more executives or big head CEOs in office. We don't need no more lawyers or previous judges in office. We need single moms in office. We need teachers who have survived a mass school shooting in office. We need the, cat, the, the bus driver or the subway driver who operates public transportation in office. We need uh, the the the, the 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 people like me, the community leaders who are nonprofit founders and organizers, we need these people in office going forward. We don't need any more from the one percent wealth establishment basically coming in like what you said earlier, finding ways to shrink and compress our independence and freedom because that's what they want because that's beneficial to their pocket, not us. So this is getting back to what we already said before. It really highlights the critical issue all to go all together. Voter education. We must raise voter consciousness. We must raise voter awareness. And all of this can be done through the keyword that always is used and thrown around, another buzzword, but it is a real word, and that is education. Voter education must be increased in the state of Tennessee. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, I, I think people also have to, um, but this goes into a systemic issue. We have a disease culture, and um, this isn't a healthy culture because it's been encouraged to be unhealthy because we do the same stuff over and over again. We don't try to change it. Um, as soon as you try to do something different, people automatically become skeptical of you, even though, and I heard it just from people the last cycle um, in the, the gubernatorial race, this mm -hmm. represents everything I represent, but they're running as an independent. That, mm -hmm. That's absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. to, um, to have that kind of a mindset, that's how brainwashed we've been. Someone that represents everything you represent, your principles, but yet you can't support them. I mean, so what's the point of voting at, at that point if you're going to not represent or vote some, for someone that represents you? Fear. I think it's brainwashing, but I really think it's mainly fear. Fear. Change is scary, right? Because we really don't know what that looks like, right? We know what, even though this is a broken system, we know what it looks like, right? It's predictable. We know what to expect. We know what to, we know what's about to happen in Tennessee. We know right now, what is it? Today's Wednesday. Give it a few more days. We're going to say maybe by the end of the week, sun, Saturday might be the last real big national spotlight, right? And then the camera cut off. And guess what's going to happen? <laughs> Business as usual. Exactly. That's why the Republicans sit up on the hill being quiet right now. they like, you know what? If we just can ride the wave, it'll blow over. And just like they were here today, they'll be gone tomorrow and we can get back to business as usual. And mm -hmm. so that's the issue, too. We let them use their fear mogging to control us. They know that it's predictable system because it's their system. They have designed it and perfected it. And so they know hold off in the window of, of outrage. And once the outrage blows over, we're going right on back to business as usual. And so to me, when you share those type of uh, insights with people that you've talked about, I know on my behalf, when I ran for governor as an independent, these are to me excuses. I'm really, what they're really saying is I'm afraid of change. And I'm so afraid of change that I will look and nitpick and cherry pick anything I can find about this person's platform or this person so that I can have a justified reason for why I didn't vote for them. Oh, yeah, I align with everything they stood for. I really agree with those policies. But, you know, they're independent. And I'm a loyal Republican or Democrat. 
Oh, is that the reason why you didn't vote for me? Okay. Or like I've heard some of our endorsed candidates. Oh, well, I, I love this person. They're, I went to school with them. I, I graduated college with them. Oh, they, they on my church's usher board. Okay. And what does that have to do with them being a terrible politician, though? <laughs> That's it, right? And so we see these people coming up with these excuses, but I really believe the excuses are based out of fear. People are petrified of change because it's unknown. It's unpredictable. And more importantly, they don't have the control. Uh, and so this is where we have to start challenging uh, these voters on. If you're serious about change, then you got to do what's necessary for change. Uh, you know, talk about visibility. Shout out to the TikTok community. That is where I had a million plus views, right? Like I got a, several videos on TikTok going viral because I'm, again, doing what I do. I ain't changing nothing about myself. I'm doing what I always do. More importantly, I'm going to keep doing. Whether camera on or off, you're going to find constant service continuing to serve the community, continue to serve the people constantly. Because until we get our needs met, I don't see a day of rest coming for myself until I can say, damn, Kiko, you straight, straight. I'm straight, straight. When we can say that, then I'm going to sit down somewhere. And so, you know, I'm going viral on TikTok because of my due diligence and more importantly, my aggression, I guess, would be the biggest thing uh, or passion, however you want to label it. But it's really frustration is what I'm really venting uh, when I come there to my elected officials and call them out directly to their face. Like, Y'all want to give this police department a million dollars, but they done killed a poor white woman and we had no resolution to that. Or even going back, we, we're celebrating the anniversary of a murdered high school student that we still waiting on resolution to. What are we doing here right now? Like, no, what are we doing? And this is where you can make a valid argument, me and you both, Tico, on when we can challenge folks to say, well, what's the difference between a Republican and Democrat? Because I'm watching a Democratic council do exactly what a Republican council is doing on state legislators right now. Now, help me understand where it got different. And so far, the answer is, oh, it's not. It's nothing different other than the color. Which, last I checked, that's gang <laughs> shit. So I'm just leaving it at that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, hopefully, we can slip in these last three topics before we depart for the day. Um, yeah, go ahead. Get them real okay, quick. awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I knew we could come through with that. Um, no, yeah, um, fired up. I did. I got you all fired up. I want to talk, not to highlight her. I mean, she's already highlighted. But I want to get the audience... Um, I guess insight into, do you know India King Cannon personally, your opponent, and what interaction have you had with her in the past? Because I think you all do, you've had encounters because I've seen, I've watched the meetings online and stuff. What have those encounters been like and what have you confronted her on? Yeah, you know, Indian Cannon facial expressions tell a lot, don't they? How she responds to me when I come to the podium, I think tells folks, this lady definitely got some vindiction with this woman. Uh, and so, yes, uh, so quick rundown of my opponent. So Indian Cannon um, was on our Knox County School Board. She was a school board chair here for 10 years. True story. Really? Yeah, really, really. And so I have been going to bat with Indian Cannon for maybe 15 years now because I was at, down there at the school board even then uh, kind of on her ass about things she was doing in our school system. You know, she took a lot of money from the urbanized and inner city youth school system and dumped it into like the wealthy communities uh, and built schools like Hardin Valley. Hardin Valley was one of the richest neighborhoods in the city right now. And she dumped money over there for them to build a brand new state of the art facility for their, for their students. Meanwhile, our kids over here can't even get uh, an exterminator to come in and remove roaches and rats, like literally. Like we deal with that type of issue. She dumped money over there. Uh, then it was things like Carnes and Buryden and Ferry. I mean, she dumped money in some of the most wealthiest white schools in our city as a chairman. And so I have been put the flag out, red flag, stay like red flag on this woman. She don't care about nothing but what rich folks <laughs> want. I'm showing that. Uh, and then what she ended up being able to massively do uh, shout out to my boy, Kevin Taylor Skinner, 
who was one of the first black people I know personally who ran for mayor of Knoxville in 2019. Uh, so the brother made history as running. Unfortunately, uh, he didn't win. But India, I thought, was able to take advantage of the fact that out of the five candidates in her first election cycle, four of them were men. And she really did a good job at sitting back and let the men kind of bicker it out, right? Like, oh, let them argue about it. And when and when the question comes comes to me, I'm gonna say the right thing as a woman. Like, I'm a, I'm gonna throw the woman card always out there on the table. And so I thought she did really well playing this kind of damsel in the stress type narrative with the with the men and the arguers and the pointing finger at each other while she gets to chill in the back. Like, oh, I'm just cute. I'm back here being cute right now. Um, and then the third, the second thing that, or the third thing, that's one with the school board, the second thing, how she ran. But then the third factor was that CCM, which is the city council movement, is founded by our black elders, Emoja in Zimbabwe, 2017, uh, realizing, like I realized, at some point we need to integrate this system. And so they launched a platform trying to get black candidates on the ticket and more importantly, into the office. Uh, and what India did well, even though she was not endorsed by CCM, she was able to do well was to pull their platform and pitch it as her own liberal-based progressive platform. Uh, we will later find out the truth, which I warned not so long, that she wasn't going to come through for us, because short enough, now that she's been the mayor for the last five or four years, coming into her final year, which is the fifth year with her election year, uh, we see that like I said, things are bad. Things are not good under any Indian Kincannon administration. Uh, and then as far as background work, again, highlighting Democrats, Indian Kincannon, who is she? Does anybody actually know the Kincannon last name, where that comes from? No? I'm going to tell y'all. Because you're going to, I know you're going to research once I give you this information. So I want you to research her. Andy Kincannon's father is Mr. Kincannon, who used to work for the George Bush administration. That's right. Her father was George Bush's right hand man. So India actually grew up a Republican, not a Democrat. Not she surprised. was a Republican. Yes. And so. Not even a Democrat, she's what we call a Dixiecrat, right? It's a combination of two where you you work the owl, then you lean this way or that way based on what's your advantage in the picture. And so Indica Cannon is actually a Dixiecrat. Her father is well known in the George Bush administration era. Uh, and the irony is that she's married. She kept her father's name. She kept her Kincannon name because that's her father's name. So she even used her political ties through her father in her own way by holding that name versus her married name. So that's who Indian Cannon actually is. Uh, and again, like I said, I know my opponent because for 15 years I have been watching, tracking, and confronting her on her policies and her performances as a politician when she was on school board and even now as our mayor. Well, you don't have to reveal too much, but um, do you have um, do you feel like you have an advantage over her when we talk about just the city of Knoxville? Because I kind of have the impression of the types of people that she's going to attract. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that I went to school with at the University of Tennessee Knoxville, those kind of people, the professional class, those types of people, and we have to talk about people who are voting in the system, participating in the system. How do you feel like you have an advantage on her as far as that getting that voter turnout that you need? I think that the advantage I have over Indian can is that I bring excitement, right? Controversy sells. We know that. And what everybody in the city and across the state knows, if you've ever had an encounter with me, you know I'm going to be controversial. I'm going to say the <laughs> shit before you say I'm going to say the elephant in the room out loud so we can all just go and get that out the air. Uh, you know, I'm not going to beat around the bush on the issue. I'm going to bring it right on to the front table. And so I think that that is going to be one of the advantages as far as we talk about voter turnout. I think people, I mean, let's be honest, the mayor race technically has been pretty boring for Knoxville. Um, there was a little bit of excitement the last time India ran, but it wasn't still, it wasn't enough. We have over, we have over 100,000 registered voters in Knoxville. And she, in her last race, was only able to produce 24,000 voters. Problem, really? right. 
Right. Yeah. Let me run it down for y'all. Knoxville don't vote. It's a problem here. Uh, and so that could be a good thing for you. Yes and no. I, I want. I want more voters though. I do want more voters. Okay. I don't want to be like when I look at the state data and seeing that seventy percent of the state didn't vote, and it's the same thing happening right here. Knoxville, seventy percent of the city's not voting. I, I don't want to be in a race like that. I want to be in a race right. where people vote. I want people to vote. And that's why I said that even when folks are like, oh, I'm going to vote for XYZ, if you saw me comment, I was okay with that. You don't have to vote for me. At least just vote. You know, I always said that. Okay, that's fine. You don't vote for me, but at least you are voting. I want people to vote. Can we start there with the voter turnout? Just show up to the ballot. Let's start there. And so I think that's one advantage that I will have is that I will be bringing the controversy and, I, and people like that. I mean, come on. That's why reality TV is able to thrive because people love bullshit. They just love watching a motherfucker arguing, bicking with each other. And so, uh, you know, I know I will bring that particular piece to the race. And so I think that's an advantage. Um, I also think that um, when it comes to the issues, I think I have an advantage to that too. I mean, Andy's going to be able to talk about dog parks. And he's going to be able to talk about speed humps. And he's going to be able to talk about green spaces and bike lanes. And he's going to be able to talk about a publicly rejected baseball stadium. She's going to talk mm -hmm. about a publicly rejected walkway. But when you start talking about homelessness, transportation, food, health care, housing, uh, uh, the black poverty, gun violence, these type of things, youth enrichment, pick any one of those actual issues. He has absolutely nothing for those things. She's failed in all those areas. And so I expect her to really avoid those issues or I expect her to really struggle when these type of questions or when I bring it up myself, seeing her response to that. it will be interesting to see how she truly responds to that. Um, and then the last part to me, you brought it up. It's really the white, moderate, white liberal is the concern. I think she'll do well pulling the rich vote. I think I'm going to do well pulling the poor vote. We do got this third guy running. He's running as Republican. So there'll be some folks who's going to use him as a skate man. Like, I don't know who to vote for. I don't want to vote for either. So I'm just going to vote for this random guy in the middle. Uh, <laughs> but to me, it'll come down to the white moderate and the white liberal progressive class, particularly. Those of y'all who claim that you care about the issue. Those of y'all who claim that people like Indy Cannon are the inappropriate representation of what a white progressive or what a white ally looks like. That is where I really feel like the real challenge lies. The, the, the white moderate that MLK and Malcolm X and many other black ancestors have talked about always been the damn problem. Uh, and I've already experienced some of that. I can call out a couple of names off the top of my head. I'm not going to do that because that's not, uh, you know, that's not this kind of conversation. But I know of some white moderates right now, and I'm thinking of in my own city, that I know was going behind my back asking other black people if they were running. And these black people came back and told me this shit. Like, yeah, he wasn't really asking people, are they running? And we told him, but no, one, I'm not running, but two, Cousins is running. So why would you ask us that? And so these are the type of things I'm dealing with. Like, oh, Y'all don't want y'all y'all don't want to vote for me. One, you're admitting that you don't want to vote for me because you're looking for somebody else to run. But more importantly, you often say time don't want to look too racist about it. So you're trying to find another black candidate to run instead. One that more caters to your comfort versus me, like I said, who's more like direct about the issue and not gonna worry about your feelings. I don't care about your feelings. People are dying. Why am I going concerned about how I say this if it offends you when really the issue is what should be offensive to you? When I give these numbers, that should offend you. When I'm able to say these are areas that we have been neglectful for and this is what is done to these communities, that should offend you. Not the fact that I'm saying a white person did it. You should be past that by now. Uh, and that's how we know as America, we're really still way behind in Jim Crow and Willie Lynch era because the fact that me saying white and white folks yelling, that's reverse racism as if that's oh, a real God. thing. That, that's the issue. And so to me, that's the challenge. Can the white moderate move past their feelings, their privilege, and their own indoctrinated racism long enough to see that I'm highlighting and addressing the issues and bringing a real solution for those issues, but more importantly, moving past this false narrative of reverse 
racism, which is really indoctrinated racism. Uh, and so to me, that's the real, the, that's the underlying of the game. The white moderate, the white liberal, the white progressive group in this city, they to me are the problematic group and really are the concern when it comes to the voting at the ballot. I think I think they're really the, the swing vote in the country. And mm -hmm. that's why electoral politics is genteel politics. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly, like, I, I think a lot of the blame has to go to th that that sort of situation, th this white moderate mentality. Um, but like I said, I have a lot of friends that, that share those types of ideologies. And um, hopefully they can come around to maybe giving, you know, other possibilities a chance um, down the road. Because, I mean, otherwise, I just see it just being the same um, the same vicious cycle that's always been. Um, uh, do, do you have enough time? Because um, I want to make sure, because I want to get your views on reparations. Okay, go ahead. Because I saw you had a lot of, um, you've been in like Twitter circles and stuff, and I've been kind of in the background, like, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy behind the wall, like I'm eavesdropping on everybody. I'm mm -hmm. not saying anything, but I'm listening. And, um, mm -hmm. and I have a few names I'm going to drop, and um, I don't care if people like it or not, but um, I'm actually trying to get someone on the forum to speak to this issue that has a lot of experience as far as like implementing um, a mass-scale version of reparations. Um, but what's your view on it? I know you said the last time we talked, you don't really use the word, you use restoration. Reparations. So, yes. Uh, yes. So uh, what I want to say about the reparation talk, as we know, uh, California uh, is a big eyeball right now. We know that they have they're they're really getting to some some of these real final detailed pieces of even saying at this point, five million for every black uh, American in California. Uh, but I want to highlight that Memphis is actually opened up a five million research study. Uh, we've seen in North Carolina, they attempted to try to do a reparation policy. It failed. Uh, and, you know, Knoxville, we even had a version of reparations that I, I, I guess I'm going to tie it all in here. Uh, and why I look at the reparation conversation as a as an issue in itself, because the way it's all been managed and it, how it's managed in its, in its, in its execution of strategy. Uh, and so my first thing is that, yes, I do support reparations, but I want people to understand something. Like I've been some of these Twitter spaces I've been invited to speak in and, and participate in with uh, people around the country as a political candidate right now uh, is that one. Reparations is not the end goal, right? Like, I want you to understand that. Black America, what, what is our end game? Like, for real, for real, what is our end game? And when I say end game, I'm talking about what are we trying to get to? And I think mm -hmm. the end game will be freedom, right? Like, freedom is the end game. So let's talk about the strategies. Because if we're going to talk about how the end game is freedom, Black folks, then let me talk about the strategies or how I analyze and, and analysis the strategy to freedom. So the first step is reparations. Reparations is bottom line. You owe us that. That is what you did to our people for centuries over centuries, thousands of years. And so this is the bottom line of what you owe to start the cycle of repair. Because what is what is what is reparation? What is its root word? Repair. So reparation is a bottom line issue, Black America. That is our bottom line. Y'all got to give us something to to restore to to restore what you've done to us. Uh, then the next step to me is restoration, because once you do the repair, now I need to be made whole, i.e. I need to be restored. So, re so to restore me is to return the lands of our more original ancestors. We were here in America before Christopher Columbus ever pulled up in this motherfucker. Just like when he kept going down to South America and kept running into black folks even then, but realizing this ain't what I'm trying to get to. So we were in South America. 
Here's my favorite part. Guess else we were at? We were in Africa. We were in uh, uh, Australia. We was over in Great Britain. I mean, pick your spot. I mean, pick anywhere you go. You know, I talked about this the last time I think I was on your show. Everywhere they did, Kiko, they find black people, no matter where they at, no matter where they dig at, no matter what mountain they do or anything. As we saw with the Grand Canyon more recently, how even discoveries of black people down in the canyon is going on. Like, everywhere they dig, they find us. So I think there's definitely proof that we were here. So the restoration part is returning the stolen lands. Now, you got the money, you got the land. So guess what you just moved into? Liberation. But liberation is actually the final step because what is liberation? Separation. We got to separate from our oppressor system. We got to separate from our oppressor's hierarchy of imperialistic structure. We got to separate from them, their laws, and everything under the sun that they say. Because once we separate, now we're liberated. And when you separate, guess what also happens? You're free. You're free. And so to me, this is my conversation around reparation. We got to move the needle. Like I told a group yesterday, our interview I did yesterday, where I'm at at this point, shout out to our ancestors and our elders. I love you to death. I appreciate everything you've done. And more importantly, for those like Dr. Amos Wilson and Dr. Uh, Francis Wesleyan and those type of folks, I am even more grateful for you because you left us the books with the blueprint in it. But let's be real, Kiko. They did not set us up with the right starting blocks for this race. And to me, for people like me and you and others that are at least 25 and up, guess what? Your time is up. We got to start thinking about how we're going to set up our next generation. And more importantly, my question for anybody that's in the movement, uh, whether it's reparation talk, restoration talk, liberation talk, you pick your lane, whatever it is. My question is, or, or more importantly, my statement is, we need to ensure that the same starting blocks we were given are not the same starting blocks we get to the next generation. That's where I'm at now. We need to move the needle somehow, some way. Because the needle has been sitting idle since Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. It has not went this way at all. It's kind of like, it trippies a little bit, but it kind of always stays in the same spot. And so for me, mm -hmm. the starting block we got, we got it at that needle mark, where it was at. But 60 years has passed since those ancestors were standing, and it's still in the same damn spot. And so my challenge to the black community, whether you're working on a reparation issue, whether you're working on a restoration issue, whether you're working on a liberation issue, whether you're pan-Africanist and you're working with brothers and sisters across the globe, is that we need to ensure that the starting blocks we were given are not the same starting blocks that go to the next generation. And so that's my real message around reparation. It is absolutely owed. It's absolutely due. And it must be paid, whether it's paid by American, whether it's paid by Great Britain, whether it's paid by Portugal, whether it's paid by the Spaniards. I don't care. Any of the colonizing nations or all the colonizing nations need to pay what they owe. But at the end of the day, reparations is a bottom line issue, but it is not the resolution to the overall issue. And that's where I want black folks to get serious about, because I feel like we're talking, we're bickering and arguing, we're doing all this divisive and, and, and division shit, but we're not moving the damn needle. And that's where I'm at with this. We must move the needle. So if reparations is a way to move the needle, then let's do it. If it's not, then do something else. But all I care about is moving the damn needle for the next generation going forward. So um, this is interesting that you bring this up because um, I um, interviewed I've interviewed John Stasevich, um I think three times. He's run for president of the United States as an independent. And um, during that interview, he said that um, for him, reparations is a wedge issue. And I I pressed him up. I pressed him on it pretty hard. Without the context, that could be considered a dismissive statement. And so I just wanted to make sure I understood where he was coming from. And I think after I heard the interview over again and I reconsidered some things, I was like, maybe the way it's being used right now, 
people are using it for their own agendas, but they're not really trying to move it forward in anything. It's like, okay, we can both agree that we're for it, but it's like, what is that someone actually doing about it? I think once that interview took place, I think six weeks ago, I reached out to people. I'm like, you know, I have to get someone on to talk about reparations. And I'm not going to lie, Constance, I am for reparations. I'm pro-reparations. I've talked about it a lot on the platform. Um, I've mm -hmm. tried to get people on to talk about it, but this mm -hmm. is what is really concerning me. It looks like it's becoming a political grab, and it also concerns me that it's associated with the Democratic Party. I've reached out to Yvette Carnell, no uh -huh. response. I've reached out to Antonio Moore, Tone Talks, no response whatsoever. I've reached mm -hmm. out to California Reparations Task Force with Camilla Moore, no response mm -hmm. whatsoever. I reached out mm -hmm. to Stanley Darity. He agreed to do the interview with his wife, I think, Kirsten Mullen, but there was a condition on the interview. He said I had to basically buy 25 of his books ahead of time to no. even. So I'm saying to myself, I'm putting you on my platform. I'm a professor. I have a PhD just like you do. And I, I work with very similar social issues and stuff. And to me, that was very disrespectful. And mm -hmm. many people say I shouldn't be bringing this up in an interview, but I'm bringing it up for a reason. Because I don't mm -hmm. think people are really trying to push for reparations. Because why would you deny someone else, a black person with a PhD just like you? This is like a public service to me. I haven't accepted any donations from mm -hmm. this podcast so far. And so you mean to tell me you can't meet me halfway and give this as a public service to the people? If you really want people to advocate reparations and educate these white people you claim they need to be educated on it? So why come you have to give this silly, bogus um precondition to even come on my show you agree sure i do i've checked out your stuff but um will you buy 25 books ahead of time i don't have the money to buy 25 of your books that's the the whole point of the audience if enough people watch it you can get that traction but to me it's almost become the game and it's really frustrating me and that's why i asked you if you know someone that's willing to have a serious conversation about reparations and they published on it and they have solutions when it comes to reparations, and we can get this ball rolling, I'm all about it. Otherwise, I'm not going to keep talking about it. If people are just going to keep playing around, making money off of an issue, and they they basically pretending that they care about something that they don't. No, I'm right there with you. This reminds me of Tariq Nasheed and the FBA movement. I know you heard about that, right? Like, yep. Got this whole foundational Black American thing going, really got Black America buying into the narrative. Uh, but then... Talking, telling folks, hey, send me donations. I'm going to open up us a whole museum to acknowledge our, 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 our uh, a contribution. And then to find out that he buys a space or renting a space, didn't even buy it. He's renting a space that he has now turned into a club that sells fried chicken out the back. Uh, and, you know, the deeper the deeper part of this, right? Like, you know, he's talking about his pro-black talk, oh, pro-black this, pro-black that. But then you find out his whole staff is white people. So it's like, oh, wow, on top of that, you don't even pay black people to do the work. Like, this is the problem with the word reparation. Remember I said this at the beginning. Prepare for that to be a buzzword in the political arena, like yeah. you already said from the Democrats coming forward because of California and some of the other people that you list off that's been doing the work uh, in, in our country around around our, our, our neighboring states putting the effort to this. Um, like you said before, it is becoming this topic buzzword narrative. Uh, but I do appreciate, now what I do appreciate, and this is something I feel like is an empowerment voting strategy for Black voters, is that a lot of Black Americans are saying this though. 
no reparations, no vote. And I can't get behind that because you're damn right. You need to acknowledge black issues. And if reparations is how we start getting candidates to acknowledge black issues, like I said, the gun violence has been an issue for us, but now suddenly it's a whole world want to talk about things, but it wasn't a thing when we were saying 10 years ago, gun violence is a problem in black neighborhoods. Then this is where we start to challenge that. Like, yeah, if you can't talk about reparations, sir or ma'am, then you cannot get a vote because at this point, y'all going to have to start talking about the black America problem and, and how it's affecting our lives in this country, or we're going to stop voting, like you said earlier earlier for these damn Democrats who don't do nothing but gaslight us when it's election season. Um, and then as far as the reparations on the personal level for Knoxville particularly, I want to talk about this. So I'm going to name call on this one because this is a black woman who failed to ensure our need been met. Uh, Gwen McKenzie is the 6th District City Council representative uh, for my community, East Knoxville. Uh, where the predominant of the black community lives at. We have them in North and South and East Knoxville, but our concentration is East Knoxville. Uh, a couple years ago, as what I call a political stunt, because I endorsed a candidate against her seat, which was uh, Deidre Cade Harper, who has a family who has founded a black business in one of our oldest black businesses. If, she, if they're not the second, they're the second or the third oldest black business we have and not so that's been standing for 30 years now. Um, we ran her against Gwen because we knew what you talked about, the nepotism factor, the community ties, the name recognition, all of that. And we were like, oh, these are a pound for pound match. But Gwen pulled a political Democratic stunt. And I say, I call it the political Democrat stunt because, you know, say what the people want to hear, but you know you have zero intentions of keeping your word to us, i.e. right from Joe Biden's textbook. So she came out <laughs> where $100 million was supposed to be given to the Black community or the Black Knoxville particularly, it said Black Knoxville, for the uh, removal and the uh, gentrification, really just the destruction of black communities in Knoxville. Like they done removed us off of Morningside. They have removed us off of the riverfront. They have came into Lonsdale and ruined that, you know, removed us in that community, literally finishing off gentrification damage in East Knoxville with this baseball stadium and other projects that they're trying to dump in our neighborhoods right now. And so there was this whole proposal the city council unanimously voted to pass it. Even the Republicans like Janet Testament and Lynn Fieldgate was even on board with it. Everybody signed off on it, like a bunch of pretty words on paper. However, it has been three years, Kiko, and how much money do you think we've gotten for that $100 million res res uh, resolution? Zero, no. literally. I can give you the number. 150,000 seed money was given by the city up front one time. Then they just recently got a $30,000 seed funding one time. So 180,000 in three years of a hundred million initiative. And it was crazy. It was crazy, Kiko, how black people heard and saw in Knoxville. And I'm sure that's how it goes around the country. Maybe that's why some of the other areas that have tried to do these reparation initiatives have failed because black people heard, oh, we about to get a hundred million dollars for urban removal but no one read the paperwork. And so the issue off rip with the resolution that my camp was yelling out was one, where is the purse strings at, Gwen? There was no money to this. It was, oh, well, the city will search for qualifying grants. Not the city is going to give in the first three years uh, uh, 10 million out of each budget year uh, to this particular task force. And then in the fourth or fifth year, we, have, we will secure grant funding for this initiative to go forward. It didn't say shit like that. It said the city will research and attempt to find grants to qualify for the initiative. So that's the first problem. We don't even know where the damn money's gonna come from. That's already a fail for me. Then the second issue was that they called it the African American Equity Task Force, Kiko. Cannot make this up. But as you know, Randy Boyd is one of the richest people in our state. He's currently trying to drive this baseball initiative down our throat here. My favorite part is, on the African-American Equity Task Force, the chairman is a man by the name of Bill Lyons. Here's my favorite part. 
He's a white man, and he's a white man that works for Randy Boy's uh, uh, enterprise. So, <laughs> how far you think about to get in this re this reparation process when you got a rich white guy that's worked for the rich white man who's trying to overtake black land right now? Okay, I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> so, <laughs> the third factor that I had an issue also with this particular policy was that the meetings the meetings are inconsistent. The meetings were a big deal when Gwen was running for office. And then after she won her seat for the 6th District, guess how many meetings we've had since on the African-American Equity Task Force? Yes. Three years now. No, no, it's not been zero, but in three years. So three. think about that. Three years. We should have at least 100 meetings by now. Kiko, I can count on my ten, on my one hand, only two hands, 10 fingers total, how many means we done had in three years on the African-American Equity Task Force. The mm -hmm. kicker is it's election season right now, and guess what the African-American Equity Task Force is doing right now? Now they're having meetings. So I was like, oh, this is going to be a grip. This is going to be something that every time election season come up, especially for Democrat candidates, y'all going to try to bring up this task force like y'all been doing something. But again, the data says, no, you have not. Because the first question is going to be asked, well, how much money have you received in three years? Because in order to keep up with a 10 a hundred million dollars over 10 year initiative is 10 million dollars a year so you should have 30 million dollars at this point and you got a hundred and eighty thousand dollars thus far in your three years and so these are some of the things that i want to highlight when we talk about the reparation initiative like you said kiko this is what i'm talking about the strategy is bad the language is not real and more importantly the money is not attached to the to the to the to the, to the policy and so if we're going to do reparation policy one we got to write how we're going to fund it Two, we got to put the money to it. And three, we got to stay consistent and present with the community and grassrootsly connected to the community so we can really get this money down and make the real changes that we need to see. Whether putting the money directly in the people's hands, whether we create uh, uh, different types of uh, infrastructure where if you got a light bill that needs to be paid, you bring it here. If you got your rent or your mortgage need to pay, you bring it there. How are we going to do it? But the point is that these are the types of reparation policies that are not even passed in Knoxville. They've been passed around the country. And so I'm like you, Kiko, if we're not going to be serious about it, then we need to stop talking about it because this play play thing we're doing is allowing white people to move in and, like you said, be able to use it as word and political grab stunts to get their own seats locked in and get that black vote locked in. But when they get in office, we get a Joe Biden. Tell us what you what we want to hear, but when it's time for the execution action, nothing is on the table. Yes, um, and I will clarify this. Um, I don't like to hold grudges against people, and um, I did not mean to name drop those people. That was not my intention before I came on to this episode, but I feel like um, people need to be called out if, if this is what it's about and um, this is a front-center issue, they need to be called out about it. I will promote the book, um, From Here to Equality by Sandy Darity Jr. and um, Kristen Mullen, because um, I do agree with the book's overall premise that I believe that only the federal government has the funds to pay for reparations. I yeah. think that these um, initiatives in these cities and stuff are piecemeal measures, and I yeah. just don't think that they're effective. I think that this needs... The federal government, first of all, owes black people an apology. Um, yeah. And on, with that apology, it needs to be everything else that you mentioned. Um, when you talk about the funding um, to everyone that, that's a black American, um, Afro-descendant, not people from the Caribbean that are black. And I know people may say that that's um, um, not fair. But I'm just saying, we're focusing right now on Afro-descendants in the United States of America. We can talk about other Blacks later, but I'm just saying for right now, it, there has to be some sort of an agenda and the focus is on Black Americans from the United States. Um, 
Allah, um, ADOS, or anything else to that degree. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that that book is worth a read. And um, I, I I would buy it for sure. Like, I purchased a copy of it. That's That was the frustrating thing is um, I can read something, but to have to not only have the representatives um, agree to do something and then not do it, um, mm -hmm. because money is just... Um, it really sat, it sat really negatively with me. I'm um, considering that precisely we're talking about black people helping mm -hmm. other black people get money ideally. And you mm -hmm. won't do the interview because of that, because mm -hmm. I won't buy 25 copies of your book, but I took the time to read your book and you won't come on my show. It just, uh, to me, that just sends a lot of contradictions, but um, I want to transition into one more thing before we go. And I want my audience to know about the Anthony Thompson Jr. Um, what happened with him? And you said today is um, um, anniversary. Memorial Day for him, like the anniversary of his death. Can you tell the mm -hmm. audience like who was Anthony Thompson Jr. and what was the details around his death? How was he murdered? And um, and everything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, one last tip on the restoration thing. Uh, what I will say about what I'm going to do, obviously, because the initiative is there. We have created a task force for it. Uh, my thing is that I'm going to shape it up, right? Like it, it, it has its, it has its uh, rudimentary structure to it. Now I need to add the, the meat and potatoes to the pot to make it be what it's going to be. And so when I become mayor of Knoxville, I am going to fulfill the $100 million reparation uh, task force initiative that was brought down by Gwen McKenzie in 2020. Uh, the difference will be what you just said, Kiko, going to our federal level of, of, of government uh, and requesting those, those funds sent down uh, to to our city because there is actually some type of federal channel that has been created. Uh, and then the big one is obviously pulling out this baseball stadium, the $114 million ticket that we recently just got. So this is another upgrade. We started $60 million in America, but now we're at $114 million on this baseball stadium. Actually, there goes our $100 million for our, for our reparation uh, um, task force. And so I'll be pulling out of the baseball stadium and taking the same money that we was going to invest in the baseball stadium and putting it directly to the $100 million reparation task force for Knoxville. So those are some of my strategies on how I'm going to actually ensure that Black Knoxville will receive this $100 million reparation initiative that was given to them three years ago. So I just want to put that on the record that that is my strategy to address reparation for Knoxville uh, with an initiative that was created by our Black representative, but as you already mentioned, was not fulfilled by that representative at the same time. Uh, so, yes, finishing off our last piece, our last piece of the, of the conversation today, Anthony Thompson, Jr. Um, if I had to honestly say why I was running for politics, I believe it was really this young man's death. Uh, because as you've already, we, we kind of already touched on it and dibbled down in it, but this is going to be directly to police brutality uh, and how we constantly see these overzealous police officers so gun-ho to, to shoot somebody, to just be honest, uh, when their number one assignment is actually to protect and serve. That's the irony. If you wanted to do shooting somebody, you should have joined the military because the military definitely has that kind of scenario and environment, theater uh, and combat zone for you to fall into. Well, that's your job to go shoot some damn body. Uh, but when you're in American Police Department, your job is to protect and serve. And we know with the history of the police department, there's much conflicting uh, and contradicting uh, uh, narrative to that type of statement being placed on this on the American Police Department. But the truth be told, their oath clearly states protect and serve in it. So we're going to stand to that. We're going to stand to what is actually uh, the 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 uh, the literal sense of, of the language. And the literal sense of the language on police American police department's walls is protect and serve all over this country. So, mm -hmm. Eddie Thompson Jr. was a 17-year-old black male high school youth student. 
Uh, he actually originally was attending Bearden High School. Here's the kicker. He was at a predominantly white school in out in West Knoxville. Uh, I think the other piece that's critical to highlight about Anthony Thompson Jr., his mother, Shonda Don Robinson, is an actual employee of the Knox County School System. She does speech therapy uh, for our special needs students in our school system. So uh, Anthony was enrolled at Bearden for three years uh, at Bearden High School. It was his senior year. He wanted to go to Austin East because uh, I'm sure like in Nashville, Pearl Cone, some of those schools, that that's the black school, right? And everybody yeah. want to graduate from the black school. Uh, and in Knoxville. Uh, yeah, we got lots of them in Nashville area. Yeah. Yeah. And here in Knoxville, our predominantly two black schools is Austin East and Fulton. Like that's why they're the robbery schools because they're the black schools, right? Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 it is a badge of honor. And you do become part of this uh, beautiful, polyphoral community of Austin East graduate and alumni when you get that that red and that red and blue uh, uh, gown on and you cross that stage for AE. And so I understood why young brother Anthony would want to go to Austin East. I understand why he would want to fulfill his family legacy as being part of that Austin East, uh, like I said, community and, and alumni graduate in his family as well. And so out of um, real consideration of what her son wanted and needed, she, uh, Anthony's mother, did decide for his senior year to transfer him to Austin East uh, on April 12th. So I'm going to just fast forward from there. There's not really much to even talk about. You know, the, the media, I'm sure if you Google his name, the media's done a great job at criminalizing the young man. Uh, you know, as uh, I've seen some of the folks uh, in Twitter spaces and even around the country on media, period, highlight the fact that the Kentucky shooter, how they talk about he's a great student athlete. He was a college graduate. He worked on Wall Street, but he just murdered uh, eight innocent people for no damn reason. And so, you know, you, you see how they play it out, right? But when mm -hmm. our black boys who didn't kill anyone for that matter, all he did was have a gun. Oh, he was the number one criminal of America. He was a top thug. He was a gang member, you know, just the slandering of this young brother's name. And so that's why I said it's not much more for me to say here because the slanderings are being done. But I would say, look at this from the lens of your own home, America. Look at this as you've been the father or the mother of Anthony. Look at this as what you would want if it was your child in the bathroom when the police approached so aggressively, what was supposed to be really just unarming and apprehending him leads unfortunately to his murder on the bathroom floor. Uh, and so that's why I was saying Anthony was a kid. Anthony also played sports. He was on the AAU basketball team. Anthony had great relationship with his siblings. Anthony had a lot of male and female friends and classmates that really enjoyed and appreciated his presence. One of his favorite activities to do was the TikTok dances. He was all into that type of stuff. And he met, constantly made routine dances with his friends and classmates uh, in school and outside of school for the TikTok stuff. So Anthony was uh, a typical black boy in America. Good kid, maybe not everything perfect, but overall he had people that loved and cared about him and really were invested in his best interest. That's the Anthony Thompson Jr. that I know and that's the Anthony Thompson Jr. I'm going to lift up. Um, April 12th, we know by some video recording of the school as well as some of the body cam footage of the officers that on April the 12th, Anthony Thompson Jr. has an argument with his girlfriend, Alexis Page. Pause. Alexis Page today is, first in a, is facing a second-degree murder charge right here in Knoxville, Tennessee. So let's remember, Alexis Page is supposed to be a victim. But today, Alexis Page is, first, is facing a second-degree murder charge where she and her current boyfriend rode to a community member's home right here in Knoxville and shot up that house over 13 times. Let, but I want to paint that scenario. She was supposed to be the victim at threat, and Anthony's supposed to be the bad guy, but this little girl faces a whole murder charge today. She tried to kill someone. Mm. So Alexis Page was his girlfriend. 
we see by the video footage that there is an argument or some type of disagreement between the two of them in the uh, hallways of the Austin East High School. We even see at some point where Lexus is going to physically assault Anthony by slapping him or hitting him in some form uh, with her hand. Uh, from there, we will watch the video footage of where we will get some evidence through the uh, district attorney and some of the evidence that she revealed publicly of text messages between Anthony and Alexis Page's mother, uh, where Alexis Page's mother is sending this young brother threatening text messages, telling him that her, her boyfriend is going to beat him up, telling him that she called the police and told him that she got a gun. And he's going to get fucked up and killed. And, and, you know, just really ugly things to say to a child at 17 years old, as you as a 40 some year old woman should know better to say in the first place. Um, the timeline will go through from one, from starting about one, one o'clock that day. And in the end, right around about three o'clock, right before school lets out. Uh, what we will see by the body cam footage is that four officers, officer Wilson, officer Claybo and officer Stanley cash, by the way, Stanley cash is a black officer and he was a ranking officer. He was a Lieutenant. So he is the commanding officer on that scene in that moment. Uh, we will see these officers enter the school uh, through the gymnasium back door. And that's the kicker. This is supposed to be an active shooter. Now, remember, this is how they sold the story. Remember, the original story was Anthony was an active shooter. But we're going to watch my body cam footage. The officers enter building calmly, smoothly, no alerting of anyone that, the, that they're in the building to compensate a gun or anything from a student. You'll even see one of the officers, when they first enter the building, go into the bathroom. He takes the body cam off and he goes, you, you get a piss break real quick. Then you'll see the officers lazily take their time, walk down the hallway to the school, the school security office. You'll see uh, Officer Wilson, who's the actual assigned SRO to the Austin East School uh, as their security officer. You'll see him look up on the computer where Anthony's at. You'll even at some point see another SRO into the into the office and they come in there cracking jokes and laughing. So you got about five or six officers in, in the in the school security office cracking jokes and laughing and looking for Anthony. And, oh, there he is. And oh, Cloudy Moore jokes about coffee and shit. Like literally, you can't make this up. This is mm. how this goes. Um, and then you'll see the officers exit the security office and go approach the bathroom where they have located Anthony's presence. Uh, when they enter the bathroom, Anthony is sitting on is sitting in a stall in the bathroom. Uh, a fellow classmate and best friend, Grayling Strong, is sitting in the bathroom in another stall. Uh, and these brothers are literally sitting in the bathroom waiting for school to end because Anthony was told by the white woman, of uh, which is the mother of Alexis Page, who texts his phone with the threats of the police and her boyfriend coming to beat him up, that when he gets out of school today, that the boyfriend will be waiting for him outside of the school to whoop his ass, basically. So we're talking about a 40-some-year-old man jumping on a 70-year-old kid. So when folks are like, well, why did he have the gun? Because unfortunately in America, that's the message that this country sells as protection. And this country, y'all say, in order to protect yourself, it's not even always calling the police, but it's actually having a gun. So if someone breaks in your house, Kiko, you can protect your family. If someone uh, violates your, your women in your household, Kiko, you can protect your women. They, this is the messaging that we sell. But let's not act like Anthony getting a gun as protection is just a random outrageous thought when this country literally sells that messaging all day long. Law, that in order to protect yourself, you need a gun. So he gets a gun. He does get a gun because he's in the pressure that a four-year-old man talking about coming to jump on him and he's 17 year old. He already knows I ain't in a fair fight. So let me even the score by bringing a gun or a knife or whatever he chooses. But he chose the gun that day. And so uh, they sit in the bathroom. The officers approach the bathroom. They come in. You hear the officers telling him to stand up. Not saying, hey, uh, you know, Anthony, uh, we were told you have a gun. So what I'm going to ask you to do at this time is if you have a gun, take it out and slide across the floor to me. Like, there, there were so many ways to unarm him. As I said before, his mother works for the school system. Now, Kiko, you're a parent. Now, if somebody calls you right now and says, hey, 
we got your son down here. We don't know if he doesn't have a gun, but what we need you to do is get down here and come in and disarm him and walk him out to us. Don't you think you're going to drive 900,000 miles per hour to that school to get to your kid before they do? Because you already know how this play out. You don't get there before they do. So mm -hmm. that's my first thing for the police department. If you really are thinking, particularly Stanley Cash, because Stanley Cash is a black officer who participates in our community. He plays basketball at the Y with us. He he mm. be at the uh, cookouts and the barbecues out of uniform, chilling on the block with us while we having drinks of beer and eating fried chicken and shit. So he is someone who I expected to have the greatest uh, discernment in the position. And the sad part is he was one of the worst ones in discernment in the position. So instead of thinking, let's call his mom and walk him out, or even let 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 the school go on and inspire out, and then we can catch him outside. You know, there, there's just so many ways they could have went about it. But to me, it was always his mother. They could have called his mama, as any parent would have done, and they would have got down there in less than ten seconds. As you telling them, your your kid got a gun in the back, and we need to come and get him out. She would have been there. I know that. I believe that wholeheartedly. She would have showed up for her child. But instead of using that option, these four men go into the bathroom, fully armed up themselves, and tell Anthony to stand up. Uh, you'll hear Anthony say some things like, uh, I think he's referencing the, the young lady and the mother, like, man, they they threatened me or something like that. He kind of says in the language of. Um, and then you'll hear the officers say something about, uh, let me see your hands. You'll hear that part. Uh, and then you'll hear Anthony kind of gibbering a little bit of something. But then when he stands up and kind of steps out the stall, the bathroom stall, you'll see the officers grab Anthony's arms and his hands. Now, this is where it gets really weird because now this is where Charm Allen, our district attorney, makes the tape disappear. Like, you'll see the tape when they enter. You'll see the tape when he stands up. But when the shooting and all that starts to happen, the tape goes black. And all we're left with is audio. You hear the audio clip. You hear the audio, but you can't see anything. Mm -hmm. And so when 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 they walk in, get his arms and hands, you'll hear Anthony say, wait, wait, wait. The tapes that we've seen go black, but you hear the sound. And what you hear at that point is several shots firing off. And we know today, because the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, so TBI, the FBI's uh, field office in Tennessee, stepped in and did an investigation, and TBI's already confirmed that Anthony never fired a single shot. They didn't do a gun residue test on because they said it was no gun residue to test because he never shot a gun. You'll also find out that all the shell cases, now, cops are administered 9-millimeter guns. The shell cases that they found, though, were 45 millimeters, which is Anthony's gun. He had the 45 millimeter gun in the in the bathroom. And so, therefore, it is safe to say by the ballistics evidence that the only gunshot was Anthony's gun. But the kicker was he wasn't the shooter. Officer Claybo of the Knoxville Police Department is the damn shooter. And so when the tape blacks out, you hear the multiple shots fired off. You'll hear Grayley Strong, who's the young man in the bathroom with him, immediately freaks the fuck out. He's like, save him, help him, he's bleeding, do something about it, y'all tripping, why did y'all do that? I mean, he will literally start saying all these different things. But you'll, you'll hear Grayley Strong literally pleading for his friend's life and, and then also in his own uh, uh, fright and, and, and traumatization he just experienced on the cops. Like, y'all wrong. Like, you'll hear him say that, like, y'all wrong. Y'all wrong for that. And then you'll hear them telling him, oh, we're getting medical staff and medical assistance. Now, mm -hmm. there is another video clip that's already been released to the public. Uh, what we do see on this other video uh, uh, body cam footage is that when Anthony is shot and laying on the ground and clearly visible having blood coming out from underneath his body, you'll see Stanley Cash, the ranking lieutenant black officer, you'll see him go to Anthony Thompson Jr.'s body, not to apply uh, uh, pressure to his gun wound, not to apply... Uh, 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 a ballistic 
uh, uh, gun uh, uh, injury goss to his body or his injury, you'll see Stanley Cash roll Anthony Thompson Jr.'s body over and put handcuffs on the little boy's dead body. At this point, I'm considering Anthony dead. And then you'll see uh, Stanley Cash, after he handcuffs Anthony, because there's blood on his hands, guess what he does, Kiko? He goes to the sink and washes the blood off his hands. So he can't deny that he did not know Anthony was not injured. Yes, he did, because he washed the boy's blood off of his hands. And then the scenario then plays out by timeline based on what Charm Allen, again, our district attorney says about the school nurse reporting down there and doing assessment. And at some point, the ambulance was called in and he was removed. And, you know, just a bunch of BS at that point going forward. But long story short, Anthony Thompson Jr. was murdered because he was a black child in a crisis and he chose his weapon of defense as a gun, plain and simple. And it's unfortunate that in a society where we are supposed to be preserving the most precious life, which is our children's lives, they were so reckless and negligent in preserving this child's life. They were more worried about being the hero than they were actually about being the true hero, which would be saving this kid's life in a crisis. And they bypassed every option, including calling his own mother who works for the school system to the school grounds to do the right thing, which was make sure her son lives through the encounter. And I want to carry farther because here's my favorite part, Knoxville, and for America, the favorite part is white boys after Anthony have continued to commit crimes with guns. And here's my favorite part, Kiko. You think they're dead right now? Do you think they're dead right now? No, mm -hmm. they're alive. This past school year in Gibbs High School, in the fall semester, a Gibbs High School student, a white boy, brought a gun to his school, and he did threaten to kill all the kids and students in his school. Guess what? They apprehended the gun, and he's still alive. Uh, we had the uh, Rural King Killer. So Rural King is a major store. I'm sure you all know something about it. It's like the tractor supply store. They offer a lot of uh, uh, farming equipment, et cetera. But we had a white male, another white kid, 18 years old, take an assault rifle to the Rural King store and kill an employee. Same thing. He was apprehended with his gun, but he's still alive. We had a, a white man who got mad at Little Caesars because his pizza wasn't hot and ready. Pulls out an AR rifle and threatens to murder the Little Caesars staff over a damn pizza. Same thing. Apprehended with his gun and still alive. And then last but not least, we had a whole white man escape jail, Kiko. Ran up in somebody's house holding a family of whole hostages. They brought the negotiation team, the whole shebang. This is a sex convict. Somebody you really got the right to kill on site if you catch him, if you catch him uh, in your in your sights to do it. They brought at the negotiation team and everything, Kiko. Walk this armed prisoner, escaped armed prisoner, white man, out of here, out of the, out of these people home, armed, apprehended, and guess what? Not dead and returned back to jail alive. So don't tell me, KPD, that you cannot not do it. I watched you do it numerous times when the assailant was white. But when the assailant was black, you murdered him. And that's what you did. So that's why I got no excuses for not the police department and more importantly for white Knoxville when it comes to Anthony because y'all do that shit for them white boys. But when it's these, when it's these black boys, y'all kill them every single time. So I don't want to hear it. And that's why we have to address police brutality. That's why police immunity needs to be ended once and for all. Um... That's why police departments need to carry their own insurance. So when these lawsuits come down, the insurance company be the one to press them about doing the right thing because they ain't gonna keep covering murderous cops uh, and, and on their tax on their insurance dollars. They're not gonna keep doing that. That's taking money from their uh, uh, from their investors and from their stock fund. So they're not gonna keep doing that for you. Uh, and then the last part is, of course, uh, thorough backgrounds on everybody and uh, biannual mental and physical evaluations. Are you fit 
for the job, just like they do in the military. Are you fit for performance? If you're not fit for performance, you are suspended. Uh, uh, and then there's a process like the military that they go through. When you're not fit for performance, they take you through a couple of processes. And, and at the end of the process, if you're still not fit for performance, guess what they do? Get the hell out of here because you don't fit the you don't fit the description of what we're looking for in our employees. Uh, and those are some of the things I'm going to implement in response to Andy Thompson Jr. Well, not just Andy Thompson Jr. Also, response to Sierra McCullen, who was mentally uh, having a mental health crisis. All she had was a knife, and she was gunned down by four uh, grown white men who claimed that she was a threat, even though she's a woman with a knife. And y'all four grown ass men, y'all couldn't tackle her. Y'all thought guns was the best way to deal with her. Uh, and as well as Philly Felt. Philly Phelps is kind of where this all really starts at. Philly Phelps was a Cambodian uh, um, a man who was approached by Officer Dylan Williams, who shot him down as he was running away in his back. And we didn't have body cams then. So we have a total he said, she said story. My question is, where is Dylan Williams today, Knoxville? Where is this man at on our police force? Is he still employed? Or are they stuffing in the back somewhere out of sight, out of mind, because they think that we're going to forget about Philly Phelps? Uh, and then, of course, most recently, Lisa Edwards. Her crime was poverty. This is a true poverty crime. This woman died uh, not because she was white, but she died because she didn't have the insurance and the economics to stay at that hospital. And so instead of preserving her life and seeing the medical distress, we have the total opposite. We have negligence, ridicule, and total humiliation of this woman uh, all the way down to her final breath when she dies in the back of a cop car being escorted to the holding center uh, out in the out in Knox County area. And so... Uh, yes, as we remember Andy Thompson Jr., I get all upset and angry again because I know that young brother should be alive today. I know there was definitely multiple ways of de-escalation to approach the situation, and it's shameful that in America, because you're a black and you're already deemed a criminal because of the skin, but when you add a gun or something else to the picture, it's almost like it is justification for your murder, uh, and an even acceptable justification for your murder because you had a gun, but white men got guns all the time, and we don't see the same treatment. I'll definitely I'll put a trigger warning just in the description, just um so so people are prepared for that towards the end. That's why I wanted to save this towards the end. And um I, I want these um stories to be documented and um I'll and send you the video too. I do have the video clip of, of the of the anniversary that the news kind of put together. Okay, okay. I, I can't I, I wouldn't be able to get through the actual audio. There's just like people ask me about George Floyd. I didn't even watch the George Floyd video. I can't anymore. I, yeah. All the public slayings of black people, like slayings in general, I, I, I can't watch them anymore. But um, it's almost like it is people just, they obsess over it. And I, I, I can't, me personally, I don't know if it's just because it's just a personal thing, you know, being a black person myself. But um, I was thinking about Trayvon, you know, being 17 years old. Didn't even mm -hmm. have a gun. I mean, it, we know that that's just such a history with this shit. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Going back just to the thought of police and the whole concept of the police system. Mm -hmm. um, and all, like you said in our first episode, they've just uh, reworded it, rebranded it. And it's, it, and it's the, to protect and serve. They put a cute little motto on it. And mm -hmm. they're still just slaying people like they've always done. And, um, and I interviewed Mike Termont. And mm -hmm. he was a former police officer um, down in Florida in, um, I think, the Fort Lauderdale area. And he's running for president of the United States as a libertarian. And he said, and I talked to him about this issue. Um, that episode I recommended, he's a former police officer that's mm -hmm. for um, unqualified immunity. Um, mm -hmm. He's using that as kind of a way, like, we can at least do this. Like, we need to end... They need to pay their own insurance, just like you mentioned earlier. There needs to be accountability. 
just like right. any other job. And um, to me, like I said, I can respect that stance. I'm, I'm not a libertarian like he is. I'm a left libertarian, like more of a socialist. Um, so I think that the government can be doing other things. I prioritize different things. But mm-hmm. um, if someone's speaking that language like, hey, we need to hold cops accountable, which means ending immunity laws for mm-hmm. these unions and stuff, I can be on board with that message all day and every day. And that's the frustrating thing about, like I said, people who support the Democratic Party. Democrats are not, they want to protect the police. State. Right. And police. like I said, people need to really reassess their views. If that's your number one issue and you're supporting the blue team, then I don't know what else to tell you. I, I just think that that's completely um, unjust in that kind of um, justification. You do, you're going to do what you want to do anyway, but I just think it's very hypocritical um, when the people you say are doing one thing, but they're not doing that. They're not. This is a basic human rights issue, and, mm-hmm. uh, and they can't even uphold their end of the bargain. No, I totally agree. Like you said before, uh, it, it, it's, it's a disservice uh, that America has continued to ignore the brutality issues of the police department. Like you said, it's too many names. That's the problem. You know, the chance of change. At first it was say the name. Now the chance is how many, or I don't want to say another motherfucking name. Like that's where we're at now with it. Cause it's really that many. And so this is going back to America's gun violence issue. As I, I think that's how I want to end it off with gun violence in America is, a, is literally an American based problem. No other developed country has this gun issue. Like we do. Every 33 minutes in America, there is a gun violence incident somewhere happening. Death, gun violence has become the number one killer of the American youth. It is the number one killer now uh, because guns are just so easily accessible. Uh, and, and then, like you said, we're not doing good things. We're not doing good background checks. So third-party members are able to go to the gun show, purchase, and then sell it to you directly. No one knows that that even happened at this point. Uh, you know, and then, and, and like you said, the red flag laws. You know, we have two laxation. I'm like you. As a black person in America, we absolutely do not need to surrender our Second Amendment rights. But that does not mean that I'm an idiot either and not realize that at the same time, we have people recklessly using their gun rights at the same time. And just like why... When a person is uh, showing that they don't know how to interact with the human public, like because they're a murderer or they're a serial stalker or they're a serial rapist. We have, it's the same philosophy, okay? Everybody don't belong in jail. We know that. But then at the same time, some people kind of do need to be put, uh, put away from somewhere because they're dangerous to society. And so I'm there with the common sense factors where I'm at with this. Like the same common sense that we use when we decide why we made a jail, quote unquote, which again, I'm not pro prison at all. Somebody say, oh, it's all about the jail. I'm pointing out how society understood that there were dangerous people in our society or, or the leadership of our society understood that we had dangerous members in the society and so instead of locking everybody else up they said no we exclude those few people who are doing this shit and we'll put them over here and lock them up and let the rest of the world carry on well it's the same thing with the gun situation no we're not gonna go out here and take out everybody goddamn gun more importantly for several reasons one like i said we're black in america we're gonna need some goddamn protection again I hate to say it, but the gun messaging is just that. It's protection. Uh, the second factor is taking everybody's guns moves us even more deeper in the trenches of martial law. There are symptoms and substance of martial law in existence, but my goodness, taking all the guns, you're definitely setting it up for full martial law. Uh, and then three, that's the other part I want to fill in on, is that 
if you leave it with guns, the military still got more ammo than everybody in America with a gun. They, they got guns that we ain't even got. And I know that because I'm a, I'm a retired veteran, so I know that. And so it's like, yeah, America still keep its guns and not be a threat to the military force of this country if it became necessary. So it's not a need to take everybody's gun. But it does not mean that we need to start practicing good gun common sense. You should be able to go to your son's softball game and not worry about somebody gunning your ass down for being at a baseball game. Just like I should to go to a gay club, and that's what I want to do tonight, and not worry about being gunned out of a gay club because some lunatic is in here with a fucking gun right now. That's what we're talking about when we say good gun common sense laws. The fact that the national killer was able to purchase her guns and seven guns in a 24-hour period, and then the next day take those same guns and go shoot some shit up with it, that's the problematic. I'm a big fan of cool-out laws. Some people know what that is, right? Or it's called a weight law. And what that means is that, Kiko, when you come in to buy your gun, I'm going to do the background check. Uh, I'm going to sell you uh, So I'm gonna sell you the guns. So you are going to get a receipt and bill of sale purchase. But then what it means is that what if Kiko bought this gun because he's mad as hell right now because somebody just hit his car and he can't even get this gun because he's about to go blast that motherfucker. So what that says is that, okay, Kiko, you came and purchased the gun today. You got the bill of receipt. But because you possibly bought this gun because it's a vindictive action and not because you really either have a, a love for guns or you just like, I don't have anything to protect myself at my home and I want that. Then what this says is that, okay, two weeks from now, Kiko, you can come back and pick up your gun. Because that is the way to prevent this from happening, right? Like, you did buy the gun because you're mad. We're going to hope that in two weeks you're a little bit more chilled out. Like, you know what? I was tripping. It wasn't even that damn serious. You might even come back and ask for a refund. Like, you know what, man? I ain't going to stunt. I bought that gun because I was mad at him. I was, I was thinking about doing some bad shit. So I, I'm going to go on and, and ask to just re refund my money at this point because I don't I don't need it. I, I bought it for the wrong intentions. And I tell you all the time, like, think about Nashville with that young lady. If she was able to purchase those seven guns but had to wait, we ain't talking about Nashville right now because you know why? By then, hopefully her parents do realize she done bought seven guns and we and that's a problem because we know she got mental health. Or her mental health therapist realized or she admits to her mental health therapist in the session, like, yeah, I done bought seven guns. Oh, shit. We got to alert the authorities because she cannot have a gun. She's not mentally stable for that shit. Or, you know, or, you know, whatever it may be. But I feel like if we had cool out laws, that young lady does not commit that mass shooting uh, in Nashville. You look at uh, Kentucky. Probably not up her either. I mean, to pick any mass shooting, most of the time these mass shootings happen uh, within days to hours of these people purchasing the gun and then executing their plan. And if we had cool out laws, you could probably prevent half of the mass shootings alone just by having people have to have a waiting period before they can pick up their items that they purchase. So uh, I'm just, I'm on good gun common sense. I'm a strong uh, Second Amendment right uh, member. I own several guns myself. But the difference is that I've been well trained on what a gun is, how to properly use a gun. I can dismember, clean, and put my gun back together. Um, and I learned that, obviously, through my military service. And as a person who grew up in black neighborhoods that had gun violence, I was scared as shit of a gun. I never thought in my life I would have the relationship I have with guns today because when I grew up as a kid in a neighborhood that had that problem, I was scared of them. And the military reintroduced me to that, showed me that, hey, Depending on how you're introduced to this gun or how this type of uh, this type of uh, tool is presented to you, you could have a fear of it. But we're going to kill that fear because we're going to teach you proper training, proper mechanism, and more importantly, the rules of a gun. Like when do you pull a gun out? When do you engage or or, or switch the lever from safety to shoot? Like when are you going to do that shit? Because you can't do that all the damn time. And more importantly, the number one rule in the military, you're definitely not going to switch it over if you ain't going to shoot. That's the number one rule. Don't even pull it out if you ain't going to shoot it. Because if you ain't going to shoot it, ain't no point pulling the shit out in the first place. And so once I went through the proper training, education of gun knowledge and safety, now today, 
I'm not only comfortable with guns, I even go to gun range with other rookies of a gun who never used one and walk them through the basic protocols of how to use a gun. I cannot name the amount of people who have came back to me like, oh my God, Constance, thank you for coming to the range with us today. We were so in the dark, had no clue, but you made it simple, you made it easy, and more importantly, you kept it safe. And I built their confidence and comfort in their own weapon and their own weapon ownership. That's the key to me. Training and good uh, gun common sense laws are the real answers to the gun violence in America. And like you said before, until we get serious about it though, Shut the fuck up, because if we ain't going to be serious about it and, and y'all just want to use it as a political ploy, then that ain't the answer either. And and that's, exact, that's a, I think, a proper conclusion, because um, it's definitely, from my vantage point, is nothing but a ploy, because um, I've followed politics for over 20 years, and I know that these gun control issues come up every time. I'm going to link something in the description, gunarchives.org. There has been a mass shooting every week since the beginning of 2023. So people need to stop pretending that this stuff does not happen this often. I'm not saying that that um, should have happened. That's not what I'm saying. I'm a very empirical person. I don't believe in bullshit. I believe in evidence. And mm -hmm. so the evidence is in your face. These happen every week, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. Why Tennessee has been highlighted so much in the news lately? I don't know why. I think all of I think it's really political personally. I think the mm. drag story hour and stuff is political. And mm. I culture on this all the time on this form culture and politics. I'm not saying the LGBTQ um issues aren't important. I'm just saying that I know political politicized issues when I see them. And that's another mm. political stunt. And mm -hmm. it always seems to happen within the same few weeks time from Tennessee, all of a sudden became the news. Mm -hmm. um, something else happened in Tennessee a few months before that with um gun violence, I think. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like it's just all of a sudden Tennessee's the spotlight. Then mm -hmm. Texas would be the spotlight for one week. But mm -hmm. like the news stories, that all sort of compiled for a reason. Mm -hmm. These are real issues. But until we do something about it, it's like, what's the point, I guess, at that point? Right, right. I'm in total agreement with you. Uh, I think I said in my last spiel to the gun violence situation, uh, like I said before, what I'm going to do uh, locally on my level uh, is that I am going to uh, see the 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 way that we can maybe pass some background laws, or some red flag laws on the local level. I know Bill Lee is finally pushing for those particular initiatives. Uh, and so uh, since the governor of our state is saying it, I'm going to piggyback off of that, uh, which I already have a gun sense policy anyways on my platform. But uh, with my governor now saying out loud, we need to do something about these lax laws, I'm going to co-sign and champion that right along with him and say that, yeah, since my governor's saying it, that we need the, the background checks and red flag laws, locally, I'm going to start saying we need the background checks and the red flag laws. Uh, and, you know, I know, obviously, with being the mayor uh, and our state legislator, I, I understand the chain of command of government, so that'll be the critical issue, is that if our state legislator don't pass background checks and red flag laws, then what can I do locally to possibly bring that type of initiative to our city? But without it being this whole hoobla, with the state legislator and these uh, these nutcases of Second Amendment rights coming out the woodwork looking for me because you're violating our gun rights now because you want to pass some policy to do something about it. Uh, so that's kind of my, my last tip to that, uh, that I do plan on locally trying to pass some type of legislation about it. But obviously, I'm going to pay really close attention to my state legislator and how they're moving about it as well to really know how I can implement those type of changes moving forward my particular uh, municipality locally in Knoxville. And we know where Constance stands on... Um policing we dedicated a lot of the first episode today episode two i mm -hmm. um encourage your audience and my audience to 
listen to that episode over again. I listened to it this morning. Um, mm-hmm. Audio version and the video version is available for people on that YouTube channel and any of the podcasting platforms. But mm-hmm. um, this issue, even with Bill Lee, and I think it's a good thing if they work that out, just like leave this politics stuff out of it and just do things. That mm-hmm. still doesn't address some of the stuff Constant was saying earlier within uh, the disproportionate violence in Black neighborhoods with the drug war. That's a constant mm-hmm. problem. And mm-hmm. uh, just the police immunity issues that we talked about before. So even though one thing may be taken care of, that still does not address other issues that we're having behind the screen. Um, is there anything else you want to leave my audience with before we conclude today? Yeah, I, I want to start with, uh, or I want to end with this one this one particular thing. Uh, all these issues come from a root cause. Uh, and the beauty of the issues, they come from one common root cause. Most of these issues that we have discussed today root, rooted in one thing, one thing only, poverty. Poverty is our, is our baseline, ground line issue. And uh, as we've already known by data, and as we have seen by models of our, some of our states in our own country and fellow countries around the world, that when the when the when the uh, when the administration focuses on the concerns of poverty, you find gun violence, uh, crime rates, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, food disparities, medical deserts. These type of things uh, alleviate their sales because you're directly addressing the cause of these issues, which is the poverty factor. And so that is what Constance Every really is concerned with poverty, because poverty is what impacts Black America. And poverty is what impacts fellow Americans at the same time. Matter of fact, poverty is one of the key things that if you say globally what makes up the biggest demographic in the world, it's going to be poverty. We know by data that 1% of the population owns the 90% of the wealth and the 99% are battling victory and fighting and killing each other literally over the remaining 10. And so if we're serious about any of these issues, I don't care who you are, where you're at, whether you're running for office, you're an organizer, you're a grassroots worker, you're a nonprofit founder, you are a for-profit business, whatever it may be, that if you're serious about the issues that we've talked about here or even the personal issues for yourself, I would say look first at poverty. Because if you start addressing poverty, we will indirectly and directly tackle everything we've talked about from episode one and two to episode 40 today. It is poverty. And that's my focus. I am trying to work, alleviate, uh, receive political power and everything else on the sun to alleviate and remove poverty. Because when you address that, you address everything else. And that's why I'm leaving it at. Constance Every, Tennessee for everyone, running for mayor of Knoxville in 2023. And we'll be back for the governor race in 2026 uh, once I do some really major work and and, and validate myself even more uh, for the, the governor's seat, for one of the highest seats in the state and more importantly, one of the historical seats for black women. Black women have not been elected as governor of any state in America. And the sad part is black men have only done it three times, but most recently uh, the brother up there in Maryland went in his seat uh, as, as, the, uh, as the governor of Maryland up there, the black man who won his seat. But other than that, America, y'all always call black women to the front line when it's time to raise our voice. Y'all always call black women for the march and the fight. Y'all always call black women for the courtroom, but y'all don't trust black women with the highest seat of any state. And that's a concern too, America. And that's why I said it's still showing how we are still dealing with a lot of other, uh, like you said, behind the scenes issues. And one of those is definitely our cultural and race-based relationship. That is still a struggle for America. But maybe we can find the correlation 
by unhelping poor white people understand our their issue is our issue too because they're poor and that's where we unite and share the common ground uh and maybe we can get that then maybe we can address white supremacy and race racism in our cultural relationships as well in this country but i feel like at the end of the day starting with poverty will be the key to all of this and that's what constantly stands for i'm a major attacker and fighter of poverty yes absolutely and we will link your official website constance Everett's official website www.tn the number four every her last name e is in edgar v is in victor e is in edgar r as in rabbit y is in yo-yo the number one.com and that's the official site we're going to link that into the description and also the gunarchives.org just so you have all those statistics and everything there and um anything else that needs to be linked i will do it as well but I want to say, beautiful people, this was an incredible episode 40. And um, we wish you luck on your campaign. We will be following your campaign. And um, hopefully the word gets out to a lot of different people. And it will be more significant because um, you're running, I know it's nonpartisan, but you're really advocating like independent thought. That's something that we really don't have in politics. Um, a lot of the times Black people and Latin people and um, marginalized groups are lumped into the Democratic Party category. Republicans are now trying to capitalize off of that. And I say just drop all the labels, period. And we need to focus people based on the issues and not based on personalities and colors next to their name and all this other stuff. And so I like it that you stand for the issues. That's what I'm about. I don't run for public office, but I, um, I'm all about supporting people who are speaking that kind of a language. And I think that's where we need to get with the electoral politics. Otherwise, there's no point of running for public office if you're just going to play the party politics game. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Brother Kiko, I got to go. Somebody's texting me saying you have another interview. So it's back to back. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Beautiful people. We will see you later. Tomorrow, we're interviewing Amira Napier. Um, we're going to talk about Palestine, Israel, and some other issues um, as far as her website and everything that she's done as far as her work. But um, we have to sign off today. Cheers. Have a great day. And we'll talk soon. Thank you so, so much, Kiko, and the Freeform Network. And yes, remember, Tennessee for everyone. Constance Every, your mayor and future governor of Tennessee. Thank you, Kiki. I appreciate you, bro. <laughs> Thank you.